In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1796 to 1806. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1793. When you're fighting a war, but your daughter's recital is at five. Written by JCB112. Captain James Tybold was a simple man. He worked a nine-to-five job, not out of obligation or necessity to put food on the table, but because he loved his job. Sometimes that involved a few awkward shifts here and there, a midnight shift during the weekdays or a day shift during the weekends, but there wasn't anything too strenuous. James worked in the UECMC, the United Earth Central Military Command, where he captained several vessels, cycling through them as the ships and timetables of his small task group mandated. Their job was to patrol the outer reaches of humanity's sphere of influence, and they did so from the comfort of the VR uplink within a small building located in what was formerly Washington State, in the former United States of America. For ten years, James had manned the con without any incidents. For ten years, the man and the rest of his crew had bonded both in and out of the office. He'd seen a great many of his peers ascend to the likes of Task Group Commodore, or even left for the Admiralty. But James wasn't that ambitious, for James knew he was comfortable, happy, and satisfied with his career. He knew then, after a decade, that this was the best career path for him. Low stress, predictable schedule, it was the epitome of a healthy work-life balance, with the sense of adventure and pride of service to boot. The work-life balance was absolutely non-negotiable. He had a wife and children to come home to every day, after all. But one day, on another unassuming jaunt through the outer reaches of Alpha Centauri, James spotted something peculiar. It was a group of bizarrely large vessels, some of them of the linoleum make and register, some of them of the jellyfish-like Vern constructs, yet many seemed to resemble the likes of the large mining stations, asteroids and all, cobbled together to form something of the ship's superstructure. It certainly dwarfed his two-kilometer cruiser, that's for sure. He ran a few of their registers through the database just to be on the safe side. Commodore, I'm reading exactly 3,792 vessels. Approximately 72% are armed and the rest seem to be jury-rigged with weapons, so I cannot confirm if they are support vessels or if they are some sort of impromptu assault vessel, sir. Hold position, Mr. Tribold. We'll get the situation sorted in a kind second, the Commodore replied simply, as James continued to stare down the fleet, holding position at the very edge system. Soon enough, after a short five-minute delay, the pleasant voice of the Commodore entered the fray once more. Hold tight, Captain. We have a delegation on their way to greet our new friends. And so James sat tight, his view screen trained on what was clearly one of the newer, classier models of civilian vessels that had just emerged out of hyperspace. It was a beautifully constructed hull of chromium, which allowed Alpha Centauri's light to bounce off of it at every angle. Each part of the hull was faceted in such a way that it resembled a floating jewel, its four engines jutting out near the rear appearing more like a delicate prongs which held the precious gem aloft. The vessel soon docked with the largest asteroid-like craft 
where time eventually groaned to a crawl as the minutes and hours ticked by. It's out of our hands now, Mr. Tybalt. Let's let the diplomats have their fu- Alarms! Claxons and alarms soon blared within James's ship as the Commodore would quickly change his tone. James! They shot the envoy, he stated plainly, in a manner that indicated mild annoyance rather than rage or disgust, as any onlooker might expect. Oh dear, is the envoy all right, sir? Yes, sir. Just a mild headache from the looks of it. No supervisor's heading down to her office right now. Damn savages! Don't they realize a false disconnect is one of the most painful things people in our line of work can experience? The Commodore sighed, letting out a genuinely disappointed tone seep through the speakers as he cleared his throat. Well, James, the boys upstairs have authorized a full retaliatory strike. If you would kindly deploy the e-warfare suites. At once, sir, James replied simply, and for the first time in ten years, feeling somewhat peeved at the outcome of what was supposed to be a regular workday. The alien ships now appeared to be approaching James's small task force, altogether numbering just under 200 vessels of varying classes. James would be hard at work now, mere mixture of excitement and enthusiastic glee crept into his otherwise calm demeanor as the uplink after uplink from his systems into the aliens would be established amidst the backdrop of a creeping barrage. The aliens' offensive was relentless. Their missiles projected to take less than a minute to reach him at this distance. Yet, the guided ones would never reach their target, instead turning back on their masters. The menacing fleet would be lit up in a barrage of light, yet the task group would remain static, refusing to fire a single battery kind. The rest of the barrage, consisting of unguided missiles and kinetic rounds, would hit the outer shields of the human fleet, only to ricochet into space. Some exploding harmlessly, others floating aimlessly, demonstrating just how many warheads were truly duds. Update, James. They don't seem to be acknowledging my requests for their surrender and immediate departure from our space, sir. But that's against the 1099 conventions. Exactly, sir. I've mentioned it repeatedly, but they don't seem to be responding. And you're sure they understand? Yes, sir. You were using the same translation suite as the envoy did. I've uplinked with their system, and I'm even using their PA systems to get the point across, so everyone on board knows. And you played them the ultimatum? Yes, sir. Ten times and counting. All right, then. You have my authority to eliminate any remaining ship that transgresses within our sphere of influence. Understood, sir. It was at this point that the alien fleet would come to a complete standstill, their engines spooling down, their reactors fluctuating in intensity as a few lights of their feet visible from James's vantage point began to flicker. Hacking into their PA systems to announce the universally ratified treaties and conventions alongside legal ultimatums allowed for a neat little back door into the rest of their systems. James! Oh, sorry, sir. I'm planning to forcibly vacate the troublesome alien so that we may return a few of these vessels. My registry search has come up with at least half of these ships being stolen or illegally purchased from our alien associates. Of course. But what about their native ship? Are you planning to vacate them too? We have standing orders from the university to retrieve any uncatalogued ship unaffiliated with our alien associates, sir. 
Wasn't that an optional memo? Yes, sir. Did you see? My son is on the Unidentified Stellar Vehicle Analysis and Assessment Committee. This would certainly give him something to chew on for months to come. Ah! How very considerate of you, Mr. Tybold. Please proceed. And with that matter, the flashing of out of the alien vessels would commence. First, it was the doors. Every possible compartment of the ship were opened and shorted, preventing any manual override. After which, the airlocks were opened, which was much easier on the large asteroid ships since they seemed to be designed for docking and perhaps boarding, thus possessing some of the largest airlocks in the fleet. This advantage now turned into their demise as the airlocks opened simultaneously, jettisoning its inhabitants. Specks of black particles would seem to eject from the massive fleet, resembling dust that now cluttered James's view of the fleet. Zooming in closer, James could see small humanoids of varying sizes cluttering the view of the relatively untouched fleet, many of which seemed to be twitching and flailing. Nash James soon shifted his attention to the other sensor screens. His eyes focused on a single green bar that rose at a steady pace. Systemic desaturation of organic aliens. Upfalls complete. No organic life forms detected, sir. All right, that's a job well done then. Oh, uh, James? Yes? Your shift is over. James would quickly glance at the small clock at the bottom right of his screen, letting out an exhausted sigh upon seeing it. Ah, well, time flies when something finally happens. A am I right on that front, sir? That you are. Now scrap. You don't want to miss your youngster's extracurricular activities. What is it today? A play? A recital? A soccer game? Oh, it's a jazz recital, sir. Emily is competing for the school's district's award. Oh, how lovely. Do send my regards to the wife. And, uh, well, little Emily. Of course, sir. And with that... James simply unplugged, leaving his sizable office behind, and of course, leaving the relevant activity logs for the next captain on shift. Howard has quite the mess to clean up, but well, a shift's a shift, James thought to himself as he quickly left the building, got into his mid-sized sedan, and drove off for his daughter's recital. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1794 Mysterious and spooky. Written by Act 1308. Francesco didn't know how long it had been since he'd been banished. Since his mortal form was destroyed and he was sent to wander the endless limbo between life and death. Most would have accepted their fate and passed on to the great beyond. But he was different. He had a reason to maintain his existence. A purpose to fulfill. People had to die. More to the point, at least one of his victims had to perish in agony and terror so that he could possess them and seek vengeance on his killers. His true name was not Francesco, of course. He had heard once that the great clowns of Europe had taken a high-sounding name as a parody of royalty to which they paid court. So he'd done the same. People had laughed at him for doing so. Laughed! Not at his antics as Francesco, but at him for taking such a high fulleton name. He'd been mocked and scorned, so of course he'd had to strike back. The dull-witted bumpkins could easily beat him to a pulp if he came at them head-on. 
so he had little recourse but to sneak up and slither his way into their houses, to introduce ground glass into their food and rat poison to their moonshine. Some had been strangled in their sleep, while others had been hacked to pieces with an axe. But it was their children who proved to be his undoing. The children he'd left until last under the mistaken impression that they would be the easiest victims. Half a dozen of these little rats, along with the irritatingly yappy little dog, had undone his plans and brought him low. He'd nearly gotten them on more than one occasion, but time and time again they'd wriggled free of his traps and eventually turned the tables on him these very last one. The door he had rigged to be proof against opening by either the stronger of the boys or the crafty of the girls had held firm against him after he was decoyed in there. Even the tiniest of vents and exits had been sealed to prevent so much as a scraggly mutt from wriggling free and somehow fetching help. When the door had slammed shut on him and the children fled his wrath, the coal oil had spilled down through the holes in the ceiling, as it had been intended to do. Even the auto-lighting feature of the trap had gone off perfectly, much as he could have wished it didn't. And so the house caught fire and burned, and him was in it. He had died, slowly and in great agony, just as he had desired for them. Some may have saluted them as worthy opponents and gone on to whatever reward they'd earned, but not Francesco. He wanted revenge. The years had flickered by like wisps of fog by the time he returned his essence to the mortal plane. Not very much to his surprise, he found that the house that had been built on foundations of ones that he'd perished in possessed harshly gothic lines. Even in his absence, his anger and pain had twisted the intent of the builders, so that the construction looked more like it belonged in a high mountain pass in Transylvania than in Middle America. In other words, it was perfect. Whoever ventured within was going to suffer terribly at his immaterial hands before they died. And speaking of which, it appeared he had already made victims at hand, Pushing aside the spiked gate, venturing up the non-Euclidean crazy paving, past the overgrown thorn bushes to the towering front door. Almost tumbling within anticipation, he drifted down into the front hallway, ready to see them close up for the first time. The door creaked open, sounding as though the carpenter had heard of oil but decided to have nothing to do with it. One by one, they trooped inside a tall fit man looking around with fiery interest, his dark-haired wife surveying the room with a cool reserve and a mysterious smile. A girl all in black with twin pats and a poker face that could rival any gambler Francesco had ever seen, and a fat boy with a glint in his eyes that screamed that he was the type to poke and pry into places he wasn't supposed to. A bald fat man with more than a hint of crazy in his expression, an ancient crone of a woman, and finally a seven-foot monster of a man who was carrying all of the suitcases. Ah! exclaimed the first man in ringing tones, throwing out his arms in a flourish. This is perfect! Guaradar Maya! I could not think of a better vacation home. Francesco wondered if the newcomer had problems with his sight. All the furniture in the main hall had sheets thrown over it, 
and cobweb stretched from the wall to ceiling, and yet he'd called it perfect. Children, you may go explore, his wife suggested. Mother, perhaps you could find the kitchen while Lurch brings in the rest of the luggage. Before the sentence was fully out of her mouth, the fat boy had launched himself up the main staircase, yelling something about dibs in the best room. His sister followed, much less precipitately, with a deadpan, Shall we see, brother? While her mother continued to give orders. Francesco followed the girl. If he could give her a fright early on, he reasoned, she would be easy to reduce to hysteria later. Ignoring the sound of a spooning smack followed by a, I'm okay, that suggested the boy had jumped on a mattress and a dead run and bounced off and hit the wall. The girl turned aside into what appeared to be the bathroom, a festooned with cobwebs as the main hall. It had mirrors on all three sides of the room. Francesco gathered his energy and focused his will. All the hate and anger that he felt at the world flowed into the mirrors. The temperature in the room dropped by a few degrees. The trickles of blood began to run down the glass. And the girl ignored it. It wasn't that she didn't see it. She seemed to peer at one of the blood runnels and frowned slightly before she turned away to investigate the bench. Running her fingertip over it, she examined the results. Her finger was black with grime. Francesco concentrated even harder. When the girl turned around, paint in blood on the wall wall with the words, You will die here. It was really ectoplasm. That he could remove in an instant if she called for an adult. But it definitely looked genuine. He waited for the fit of hysterics or even a scream of terror. If she tried to bolt from the room, he was going to slam the door and lock it so she would be half mad from fear before anyone found her. She did none of that, strolling over to the blood writing. She dabbed her finger in it, then put her finger in her mouth. Hmm, she murmured to herself. Rude. Francesco struggled to understand why she was acting this way, why she wasn't running or screaming. I have it. She's paralyzed with terror. After standing immobile before the warning message for a few seconds longer, the girl opened the bathroom door and leaned out into the hallway. Brother dear, she called in that same emotionless voice. Aha! Her wits have befuddled with fear, and she is attempting to call for help. The boy's head popped out of the door further down. He looked altogether too happy for someone who festooned with spider webs and had a large black widow crawling on his face. Yeah, you may have first pick of bedrooms, but this bathroom is mine. What? That made no sense. What? Why? The boy apparently agreed with Francesco's query. He peered suspiciously past her into the bathroom, still oblivious to the Black Widow, which was investigating his left ear. It's haunted, therefore I claim it. What? He shoved past her into the bathroom. Ah, oh, man! You already got bleeding mirrors and a death threat. I want a cool haunted bathroom too. Well then, you are going to have to find your own. The boy looked like he wanted to cry. Mom! Wednesday won't share her haunted bathroom. Then mother's voice floated back up the staircase. Wednesday, dear, share your toys with your brother. Haunted bathrooms? The father sounded positively thrilled. Morticia, my darling! We scored a real bargain with this one. Wednesday, who even names their child that, gave her brother a narrow-eyed stare. You have prevailed this time, brother dear, but I will have my revenge. 
Despite actually being a ghost, Francesco felt goosebumps run down his immaterial spine at the menace in her voice. The children were clearly insane. He was likely to have better results with the adults. As he drifted down the staircase, he heard the girl say, You are aware that there is a black widow attempting to nest in your left ear, are you not? Oh yeah, her brother enthused. Isn't she pretty? I'm calling her Esmeralda. You call every spider you get Esmeralda. Even the boy wants utterly, utterly insane. Francesco drifted down through the house and found the parents unpacking some of the suitcases. There was a rack on one side of the room, now holding several weapons. Francesco decided not to try his knife with the battle axe, but the shooting sabers caught his eye. After the mother, Morticia, left the room on some errand, he lifted one of the sabers from the stand. It strained his ectoplasmic energy to lift and move it, but he forced it onward, aiming it at the man's back. <laughs> with a twisting, evasive move, these would-be victim moved aside from the attempted attack. Very nice dish! Come see this! Before Francesco could bring the saber around again, the man had taken another one of the weapons from the rack. Blade clashed against Blade, his opponent holding an arm behind his back as he moved forward and backwards. He seemed to be positively enjoying himself as he fended off Francesco's attack. Gomez, what is it? Morticia emerged from the other doorway. Oh, I see. How delightful. Francesco decided to change targets, turning the blade towards the woman. Perhaps if the man saw his wife hurt or killed, he would drop his guard. But before he could get to her, a saber blew past him. She caught it at royalty and fended off his blow. Where did you find this one, darling? She asked as Francesco tried again, but his every effort failed. She was clearly as adept at fencing as a husband. I don't know, he replied happily. It just showed up. Well, this house is certainly a keeper, Morticia declared, parrying another determined assault. We might have to move here part-time. His ectoplasmic strength almost strained. Francesco moved back, the saber drooping. He had no idea what was going on, but these adults seemed almost as demented as the children. Confirming his thoughts, Gomez turned towards Patricia. And guard! he cried, his sword flickering out towards her. She responded to his sally with a flickering repost that sent him dancing backwards, with white teeth gleaming in a broad smile as their blades rang lightly against each other. If anything, Francesco thought Gomez was trying even harder to skewer her than his own poor efforts had managed. Drooping the saber so the point stuck to the floorboards, Francesco left the room. Behind him, Gomez and Morticia didn't seem to notice as they continued their impromptu saber duel. The sound of metal on metal was a reminder that no matter how hard he tried, his revenge on the living was forever out of reach. When he reached the kitchen, he found a large cauldron in the place of an oven. A fire had been lit under it, and the old woman was busy stirring something in it. He had no sense of smell, so he didn't know what it was, but the steam that rose looked somehow unpleasant. On the bench nearby were rows of bottles. Francesco looked more closely and found to his delight that many bore warnings about poison and horrific death. When the old woman turned her back to get more firewood, he snatched up one bottle after another and emptied them into the cauldron. She returned to a stirring, occasionally dropping some dried root or herb into the mix, without ever seeming to notice the empty bottles. Chuckling to himself, Francesco slunk off into the dark recesses of the house. 
When the intruders into his domain tasted that dead brew, they would know his vengeance at last. Finally, he would be reborn into a new body. Time passed all too slowly, but eventually the family gathered around the long table, which had a row of candles on it. Gomez sat at one end with Matisha at his right hand. Wednesday with her brothers sat across from each other with the old woman beside the boy, and the fat bald man at the far end. There was one empty chair, which Francesco figured would belong to the enormous manservant. What was he called? Lurch? It suited him. As if thinking of his name summoned him, Lurch appeared from the direction of the kitchen, bearing a tray with bowls of a concoction which he had been stewing in the cauldron. Everyone got a bowl, and the larger one was placed in the middle of the table. Francesco cackled quietly to himself. Nobody would survive to take seconds. Lurch seated himself, and each of the diners applied themselves to the meal. Only two or three spoonsfuls in, Morticia turned to the old woman. Mother, she exclaimed, the stew tastes positively divine. What have you done differently? The old woman appeared into the spoon she was holding, squinting, as though she could determine the ingredients merely by looking at it. I don't know, she said in a high-pitched cackle. I made it just the same as normal. Maybe because of the scorpion tails were dried instead of fresh. Well, I like it, Gomez said heartily. I vote you make it this way every time. At the end of the table, the fat man hiccuped and raised a finger. What is it, Festa? asked Morticia. Was there something you wanted to say? Festa nodded, then opened his mouth and bouched it deep and long. The effusions from his erection struck the first candle, causing a blast of flame to erupt half the length of the table. When it died away, the candle was melted a good third of its length, and both children were holding cooked marshmallows on sticks. That was a good one, Uncle Festa! The boy enthused, then dipped his marshmallow in the stew and ate it. Can you do it again? Can I? Fester had an annoying voice that managed to be both high-pitched and gravelly at the same time. Watch me! He began shoveling stew into his mouth as fast as he could. Lost in dismay and frustration, Francesco drifted away again. No matter what he tried, the inhabitants of this house took his deadliest attempts on their lives and sanity and positively encouraged them. What kind of people were they? Eventually his meanderings left him back to the kitchen, where there was now a game of cards going on. Vesta was there, along with Lurch, Morticia's mother, and what looked like a disembodied hand. As he watched, the hand laid down his cards, snapped its fingers for attention, then tapped the table. Two cards, thing. Here you go. Vesta picked up the deck and skimmed two cards into the hand's hand then looked around directly at Francesco. Oh, hey, look, Granny, it's our house guest. You mean, it's my little kitchen helper, cackled Granny. I saw him poking around when I was cooking, but I never thought he added something to the stew. She smiled broadly, showing missing teeth, as she beckoned. Come on in, join the game. What, what? You can see me. Francesco was taken aback, but, but nobody can see me. We can all see you, Vesta explained kindly, as he dealt out five cards to an empty spot. For Adamses, that's what makes us special. We just pretend not to when you're trying to be invisible. Uh, that's just manners. As if in a dream, Francesco drifted around the side of the table and exerted himself to pick up the cards. But I've been trying to kill you all. Lurch made a noise like a malfunctioning rock crusher. After a moment, Francesco figured out 
that the man mountain was laughing. Don't mind him, Esther said, pitching his voice quietly enough that they probably could have heard him no further than the third floor. Murder attempts are how we Adamses say hello. You'll fit right in here. I mean, I remember the time I was being pursued by a vampire in Transylvania Mountains. Night and day he chased me, all because I'd skipped out in the bar tab. What about that time that I had to fight the, the werewolf? Complained Granny. I mean, uh, it was Cousin Loretta, but she had this terrible thing about shedding all over the furniture. So one day I had enough. Loretta, I said, you're going to have to clean up after yourself. Insane, thought Francesco. They're all insane. But that's okay. Because I think I've gone mad too. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1795. Story number one. Last Stand, written by Weijin Warrior. The pilot of the small vessel reached out and flipped the switch. Recording and transmitting. I still don't see why we're doing that. The pilot didn't look at the weapon operator. She couldn't. The cramped layout of the ship had two crew facing away from each other. According to orders, the pilot replied in the triad voice of someone who had explained it many times before. A running log is to be recorded and transmitted in full. To a probe. To several probes that will, on conclusion of the battle, blink out and travel to known alien systems before broadcasting the whole thing, yes. But why? To show them how humanity died, I guess. We better start working on the checklists. A little later, as the pilot worked through the various settings on the navigation system, the weapon officer spoke up again. The volunteer shuttles are arriving on assigned positions. A desperate measure, for sure. A million to one chance, not even that. Barely trained, barely equipped. Twenty bodies crammed into a shuttle, hoping to somehow punch through and conduct a boarding action. Madness. Still, I can understand the volunteers. Better to do something than just wait outside for an orbital bombardment. Seventy thousand. Would be more if they could have manufactured more assault shuttles. There are riots at the mustering points to be allowed into the program. Yes. This is it, ain't it? Aye, yes. We're not going to sure leave after this one. It's not like we're getting to the next paycheck anyway. Hmm. Nor would there be anywhere left to spend it. On the upside, I don't have to conserve Delta V for the return home. There is that. The weapon officer looked up from his console, trying to see anything through the small portal next to him. They are phasing in, targets classified and prioritized as terror control sees them. There is, uh, a lot of them. A target-rich environment, for sure. More than Intel projected. A lot more. Intel had been a mix of facts, projections, and wild guesstimates. Hopeful assumption and plain lies for the entire campaign. True. We've been assigned to target cluster. Six heavies on even dozen escorts. If we can't cross to Demi's orbit, we can engage in 15. Copy. Who else has been assigned? It's us. And 10 assault shuttles. Our heavies have been assigned to Earth defense. Just us. Roger. Target-rich environment indeed. Stand by for maneuver. The weapons officer kept scrolling through the reports on his screen. We're going to be in range in 10. The outer colonies are no longer transmitting. Roger. Give me a vector on the... Whatever heavy is closest. When we're in range. On your screen. Long range fire just took out the hood. Magazine explosion. Copy. Let's focus on our corner of the system. Wilco. Tonga cluster is maneuvering. 
updating our vector. The fans in the cramped cockpit were overloaded as the pilot neatly lined up the vectors. How long? Five minutes to contact, and you want to know this. Brazil just got hit by a bombardment projectile. Which? Which city? Brazil. As in the whole country. Galejo. My feelings too. We're in weapons range. Copy. We're going in. Weapons hot. Pater Noster. Quaestan. Missiles away. Chaff deployed. Recommend. Tum advent regmanum tum fiat. Close one. You've got a new vector. Insalo et in terra venem. Hit. Multiple hits. One escort is breaking up. De nobis hodi. Ardiet in inferno fili canono. Et demete nobis. Out of missile switching to unguided rockets. Et nos diminutus. Debitoribus. They are attempting to jam. Whole EM spectrum lit up. Good thing the rockets are dumb. Nons indicus in tant totinum. Shuttles are pushing through. Two down. Rest angling for lead heavy. Libis nos eh. Contact. Reaching charges. Six of them made it. Amen. Amen. Now take us wide past so we railgun can recharge. The weapon officer straightened up as so fast his water bolt went ricocheting across the small cabin. They did it! The assault force reports controlled too heavy. 60% loss of personnel. My God, have mercy on their souls. Is it? Wow. Oh. The heavy is opening fire on the other shading ships. Our assault force has gained control of the weapons and targeting systems. We still have some time before we're in weapons range again. Give me the big picture. Um, outer colony's gone. Venus Station reports massive damage and is evacuating to shuttles. Half a dozen orbital penetrators have hit Earth. Latest reports indicate more than 50% loss of fleet's assets. And the volunteers? Losses unknown, but about, oh, one in ten of the alien forces are showing green on the screen, and most of those are directing weapons fire at the other alien ships. Not enough. But they will remember us. Yes, they will. They all will. We have 15 rounds for the railgun left, and two volleys of rockets. Copy. Once more onto the breach, then. The fans had stopped working. Sweat was pouring from both the crew's faces. Out of rockets, two shells to the left. Reactor unstable. Copy. It's been a pleasure. What was that? The captured heavy just blinked out. Went to hyperspace. Uh, probably. Half my senses are not up. Hold on. The pilot jinxed the craft, narrowly avoiding the searing beams stabbing out from the alien ships. It is happening across the system. Captured ships are blinking out. What the... Hold on. Intel just flashed a report. Ship auto-recall system. Shit. So all that for nothing. Well, they'll remember. The cockpit went to white as one of the stabbing beams found the small craft. The instructor turned off the projector. Students from a dozen races blinked as the lights came back on. What is now known as the last stand of terror happened 100 cycles ago. The record you just watched was recovered from one of the automated Terran probes. Several of the students made signs to ward off influences. To a lot of races, the words of the dead were considered unlucky. Since this randomly selected recording ended before the end of the battle, the teacher continued, perhaps someone could tell the class what happened. Several variations on the theme of Fallen shot into the air. The teacher hesitated, then indicated a student in the back of the room. The captured fleet was auto-recalled when the onboard systems detected that the proper crew was incapacitated, the student said as he unfolded. 
According to the ship's programming, they phased into a low orbit over the attacker's home planet. The students were all staring at the upright alien. The human broaders promptly subjected the planet to an intense bombardment. The student continued, causing significant casualties as well as taking out any military command structure in the short while it took for the attacking government to first work out what had happened and then attempt to negotiate a surrender. Do go on, the teacher encouraged as the student started to take a sit down. Um, negotiations were cut short by an orbital projectile. The remains of the government surrendered unconditionally. Couriers were dispatched to Sol immediately, where less than a quarter of the Terran fleet remained. Very well, the teacher said as he motioned to the student to sit down. And as you can all know, this kick-started the Terran Empire, as outlined in the class you attended last cycle. So why do we still call this battle the last stand of terror? The same student raised a limb. The teacher nodded. Because there will be no more battles of terror. Humanity has made sure to wipe out any information on the location of Sol. They have taken control of a dozen races. Human laws are in effect, and Pax Terror is pacifying the whole of the Orion Arm. Any species attempting to rearm will be, uh, reminded not to. Very well, said the human teacher as he sat down. And you all better remember that. Now your homework for today is... End of story. Story number two. They set the air on fire. Written by Flaming Raven. UE3, a moon of little importance. Its air was thick, curling off its vast oceans of methane. It was of little importance until the war began. The Empire was struggling to halt the advance of the Terran filth that was leeching off its borders. So he placed a secret weapons testing facility on the planet, hidden beneath its surface. The massive orbital gun would be exposed for a standard minute at most, before destroying its target and be hidden once more. A minute to fire, five to reload. I am Admiral Mog. My mission, defend UB-3 from the Terran menace. If only it were that simple. The filthy monkeys barely engaged my fleet in the opening of the battle. Instead, their forces deployed on the far side of the moon, the exact opposite of the cannon. They excel at ground warfare, so it made sense to start off with what they were good at. Luckily, they cannot breathe methane like us. They are limited to oxygen, so it would be a while for them to scurry their way to our facility. But I left the ground defense to General Tog, my brood brother. I received a message before the fleets met in combat. Standing in the center of the flame with a steaming mug of roasted bean water, or coffee, as the Terrans called it in hand, was a female Terran in the later years of her species' life cycle. Her icy blue eyes appeared tired for a Terran. I was about to speak before she took a drink of her coffee loudly. We need to get that latte machine fixed ASAP, she muttered. An engineer saluted her and ran out of the frame. I can't stand instant coffee. I am... I tried to begin once more. Too early for the usual. You are inferior to us, shtick. I am only sending this message as per protocol. As we're sending our troops down to your moon, she began setting the mug of disappointment down on a flat surface. In reality, I just want this over as soon as we possibly can. I received a communication from General Tog. Alert! Multiple ships leaving August. Multiple life farms detected. I ordered a scan of the surface via our shortwave hive mind comms. Scans showed not a single Terran on the planet. Something felt off. 
So instead of the usual method of engagement, I was given a green light to destroy the military target known as... She squinted at a datapad. UV-3. By any means necessary. I ordered the facility to prepare for orbital bombardment. Come on, get the salamander on the line, the woman said. Yes, Admiral Pedersen. Salamander on screen. The disembodied voice said before the image of another Terran was shown up on screen. Hey, Helen. What's the news? The male Terran asked. He smiled, showing through the silver beard. Hey, George. I'm activating the Bannigan contingency. The now-named Helen Peterson said. George pressed a series of buttons next to him. Primed and ready, ma'am, George said. I received word that the facility had finished their defensive preparations. I sighed in relief. No orbital bombardment could touch them. My brood brother was safe. Launch the Devil Seed, Helen said. That was an odd name. What could it mean? A single projectile fired from the HMS Salamander. It broke through the orbit. I knew the following barrage would come afterwards. This was simply the first shot, firing for an effect on target. General Zog ordered it to be shot down. Our point defense systems fired a single round before that round even touched the projectile. It detonated the moment it hit the atmosphere. It was as if a new sun had been born before my very eyes. The methane in the air wasn't nearly enough to cause such a sight. This must have been a new Terran weapon. Communications from the facility were still going strong, but the fire wasn't dying down. Yeah, looks like we're done here. Good luck putting that out in the next... She checked her datapad again. Fifty years. Fifty years! My shock must have been obvious, yeah. The devil seed usually only burns the planet for about a month, but seeing as it's a moon, and it, it was, sorry, saturated with methane and ethane gases, it's a whole different calculation, Helen said. More sensor pings lit up in deep space. A fleet nearly ten times larger than the first, and five times larger than ours, was coming out of FTL. A cold dread took my soul. This was the actual fleet. We just lost an entire moon to a scouting flotilla. The Terrans are far more intelligent than I gave them credit for. They make weapons, and they keep them until they have to use it, such as their devil seed. It appears to, for lack of any better word, it sets the air on fire. Terrans are insane. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1796 A Human Warfare Carol Written by Rednell97 Tyrolion was a great conqueror Sat in his command chair On the bridge of the Righteous Conquest The flagship of his armada He turned towards his helmsman and asked How long until we reach our target? The asked officer replied About twelve tacks, sir Good Enough for a good night's rest I'll be in my quarters. Notify me one Turk before arrival. Without waiting for an answer, Tyrolline stood up, turned around and went into his room, where he laid down in his bed in order to sleep. Nearly as soon as he fell asleep, Tyrolline woke up by some kind of rattling noise, like that of old metal chains. And when he opened his eyes, he nearly fell out of his bed from the shock. Before his bed stood a figure, clad in a finely crafted and highly decorated military uniform, which would have given the mysterious person an awe-inspiring aura, were it not for the heavy chains that bound his arms and legs and torso. Upon closer look, Tyrolline recognized the person. Hi, Lord Traxit, is that you? I can't. You are dead, came the amused answer. Yes, I am. And unless you change your ways, you'll be soon as well. 
Tyrolion couldn't shake his confusion. But what's up with the... the chains? Those are punishment for my sins. And before you ask why I don't live in a paradise for all the rightful and just conquests I've led, well, it turns out they weren't that rightful and just after all. But deep down, you already know that, don't you? Just like I knew as well. But the right of conquest is the holiest of... Tyrolline tried to justify, but as quickly was interrupted by the chained individual. Oh, spare me the ramblings of your high priest. You're slaughtering primitives because they can't fight back. There is no honor in that, and you know that perfectly well. But I'm not here to change your mind. I will only give you a message. After that, I'll leave you to yourself. Tonight, you'll be visited by three entities that will show you what was, what is, and what will be. Learn your lesson, or your punishment will be far more severe than mine. With these words, the being vanished, and after a few minutes of wondering what was that about, Tyrolline fell asleep again. The ghost of human warfare passed. Tyrolline woke up again, this time to what sounded like a battle cry. When he opened his eyes, a figure stood before his bed again. But this time, it wasn't the High Lord Trext. It wasn't even a being of his same race but an alien from a race Tyrolline had never seen before. It was clad in what looked like some ancient armor made of leather and some polished golden metal, maybe brass or more likely bronze. The long wooden stick with a sharpened metal tip was obviously a whip, and what looked like a hilt on his belt suggested he had a sword as well. What are you? Tyrolline managed to stammer out. The figure responded with a strong but not overly loud voice. I am ghost of human warfare past. I am here to show you what Forge knows you want to fight against. Tyrolline again struggled to rid himself of his confusion. Human? Yes, of course you don't know them by that name. They are the inhabitants of planet Earth, or as you call it, S-117. The next target... So, go on, show me. The ghost let out an amused sigh. Look around! In that moment, Tyrolion realized that the whole time his bed wasn't in his room anymore, but stood in a wide, open field. Around him, dozens of what seemed to be the same species as his unwanted visitor. But instead of being clad in ancient armor, their bodies were covered by raw, untreated animal hides. And instead of spear and sword, these were armed with stones and simple slings. Those primitives seemed to be two distinct groups, which, like prompted by an unknown signal, suddenly began running towards one another. And where they met, they started to fight with a ferocity barely seen even in the wildest of animals. Before Tyrolion could make any comment, the ghost waved his arm and the scene changed. The wide open fields were replaced by a narrow path between mountains, and a few dozen fighters by the hundreds of humans who wore similar armor to the ghost itself, standing shoulder to shoulder, shield in hand, blocking said path. Opposing them was an army several thousand strong, yet the few hundred showed no fear. As the fight went on, it became clear that while the smaller force was better trained, the sheer numbers would eventually defeat them, but they fought on nonetheless. For days they fought, without tiring or giving up the defense, only being defeated after a traitor led the enemy through a hidden path, allowing a small force to be outflanked. Again, the ghost waved his hand, and Tyrolion was in his room again. He turned towards his visitor and said, I understand what you're trying to show me, 
Those humans of yours are very ferocious and determined people, which makes them great warriors. But still, they can't possibly have a chance when fighting an armada, which is millions strong. As he uttered those words, the ghost vanished. So Tyreline went back to sleep, confident in his capabilities and that of the force under his command. The ghost of human warfare present. This time Tyreline woke to a large explosion rumbling in the distance, and before him stood a figure that seemed to be in the same species as the previous one, only this time, instead of leather and metal armor, it wore a whole outfit with strange irregular green-brown pattern, including a vest that was likely contained some kind of armor plate. In its hands it carried a strange contraption made of wood and steel, shorter than a spear of the previous ghost. It had some resemblance to the lesser rifles these troops wore, but without power packs, so maybe a slug thrower. This time, Tyrolion could think clearer. So you want to show me how the humans fight now, right? I am the ghost of human warfare present and well. What I'll show you happened a few decades ago. But considering the scales of time, that should count as present. Again, Tyrolion looked around that all he could see was wasteland. As far as he could see, there was no green hills, no colorful flowers. Only mud and dead trees. In the distance, he could see a big artillery cannon throwing huge shells across the wasteland into some kind of defensive trenches and exploding in enormous fireballs, getting dozens every second. But after a few minutes, the shells stopped exploding. Instead, they released a thick yellow smoke that caused horrible injuries to everyone it touched. Nobody could survive that. So Tyreline prepared for another scene change but it didn't come. Instead, there was a sudden, loud, and very high-pitched sound from the other side of the artillery guns. And, as soon as it ended, there was an uncountable flood of humans spinning out of those trenches towards the one that Tyreline had just seen being ridded of all life. But it wasn't because as soon as the flood started, it was met with the heavy repeating fire of the dead trench. Dozens of guns, each firing multiple shots per second, each shot killing another attacker, and yet the flood of soldiers rolled on like it didn't even notice. When the flood reached the other trench, the remaining defenders weren't just killed. They were drowned in bullets and blades. Tyrolite was a hardened warrior, but even he couldn't watch as they played out. So he looked away. When he turned back, the wasteland was gone, replaced by another, less destroyed wasteland that suddenly dropped off at a cliff. It was clearly the aftermath of an intense battle. One army driven back below the cliff, while the other one held a part of the land above. In between lay two hundreds, if not thousands, of dead and dying. And there, crawling through the mud, was one soldier dressed similarly to a ghost next to him. But he was missing the gun. And on one piece of equipment there was white circle and a red cross. At first, it looked like he was dragging himself towards the cliff edge. Too likely safety. But instead he stopped at one of the wounded quickly dressed his wounds and then dragged him towards the edge and slowly roped him down towards his own people. Then, instead of following down, the unarmed soldier turned back towards the battlefield and started crawling. If he was to be spotted by a single enemy soldier, it would likely be the end of him. And yet, he returned again and again, saving one life after another, until Tyrolion lost count, and quite a bit after that. Only when the soldier couldn't find anyone alive anymore, 
when, when he was grown so weak that he could barely carry himself. Only then did he allow himself to end his search and return to his fellow soldiers. Another wave from the ghost and Tyrolion returned to his room where he faced his visitor and told him, The ruthlessness of the humans as well as the number of them that are willing to fight is impressive and their compassion and camaraderie is commendable. But their technology is so far behind, they could never be a true threat to my armada or our people. Again, the ghost vanished, and Tyrolion lay down to sleep, this time with far less confidence in his superiority. The ghost of human warfare yet to come. He awoke again. Tyrolion could only see black figure before him, Considering the size and rough shape, it was likely another human-like ghost, though most of the details were hidden by the tattered cloak, which was so black it seemed to drain the entire surroundings of all light. Let me guess, you're the ghost that shows me what will be. Instead of answering, the visitor just turned around and looked at Tyrolion, which immediately backed away from the sight. Instead of an alien yet recognizable face of the ghost that came before, this one was made only of bones. And while it had only dark, seemingly bottomless pits where the eyes should be, it fixed Tyrolline in a stare so intense that even the highly trained warrior simply froze in horror. When the ghost looked elsewhere and Tyrolline was again able to look around, he stood on a mountaintop, looking down at the vast area of land. There were other mountains, rolling hills, forests, and a beautiful ocean. And above all in the sky hung his armada. It was an awe-inspiring scene, which made him understand the true reason why many primitives surrendered immediately after first contact. Not that surrendering prevented their inevitable slaughter. The humans, however, didn't bow in respect or cower in fear. They mobilized. Millions of people calmly made their way to the next military base. Airfields prepared their fighter jets. Civilians kept on with their lives as if nothing happened. If Tyrolion didn't know it any better, he would assume it was just a training exercise. As soon as the first landing pods were fired towards Earth, the jets rose up to meet them and escort them to the ground, where most of them were met with heavily armed but relaxed group of soldiers. They stood there, hands deliberately not on their weapons, making it clear that they were not interested in a fight, but able to defend themselves if one broke out. Then a single shot of a laser gun was fired and all hell broke loose. The troops already on the ground were mowed down by the human infantry opposing them. The fighter jets shot down the landing pods they escorted and the pods without escorts were hit by anti-air missile launched from previously hidden positions. Tyrolline was shocked. How could they have such effective weaponry? They aren't even really spacefaring. The ghost next to him remained silent. Tyrolline tried to calm himself down anyways. We'll just send the heavy dropships. The humans need multiple rockets to take down a single pod, so they can't hope to damage one of the heavy ones. As if on cue, bigger vessels were launched from the Amada. They were met by another rocket barrage, which, as predicted, didn't cause any major damage. That was until an ominous siren rang out in the hidden underground base, followed shortly after by a rocket rising up out of the ground. It was bigger and slower than the previous ones. And when it hit one of the ships, the entire surrounding area was bathed in an incredible bright light, even blinding Tyrolion, who stood miles away. When he regained his sight a few seconds later, there was little left of the dropship. In its place, there rose a cloud up to the sky, 
a very distinctive cloud. That could only mean one thing. Nukes! Those damn primitives have nukes! And, and, they, they are willing to use them in their own atmosphere. He looked up the black figure next to him, but it didn't answer. It only waved a hand and the world before them changed. There still stood the same mountaintop, but now below them was only a wasteland. The war obviously raged on for some time, maybe a few months. The soldiers of the Armada kept attacking, and the humans kept defending, but something was strange. The humans were using Armada weapons, not all of them, many still wielding slug throws, but others held laser rifles or plasma cutters. The humans even captured some of the heavy ion artillery, no, not captured. They looked different. They built their own in a matter of a month. How? Tyroline was interrupted by a low rumbling noise. A few hundred meters before him, a craft rose up into the sky. It was obviously human-made, but it was lifted by a grab drive just like the Amada dropships used. As it rose to the sky, it went faster and faster until it hit the Amada flagship and Tyroline watched as in a blink of an eye. The pride of his armada was turned into a debris cloud, which, in an unfortunate chain reaction, crippled or destroyed the rest of this once great invasion force. Tyroline stared in disbelief, his mighty armada destroyed by primitives. He looked up to his unwanted companion, which once again remained silent and waved his hand. They now stood on a different mountain. Below them was a beautiful piece of land, but it was something wrong. The plants, they were blue. Are we? Oh no, the whole world! The ghost beside him didn't say a word. He just slowly nodded. And in the next moment, it rained fire from the sky. It came from the ship similar to the one from before, only bigger, and it devastated everything below. Tyroline turned towards the ghost. But it doesn't have to be like that, right? I can still avert this disaster, can't I? Please answer me! I... I... I need to make this right, can I? But the black figure just vanished, and Tyroline found himself back in his bed, where he quickly fell unconscious. The next morning, Tyroline awoke to the piercing sound of his compad. His helmsman informed him of the oncoming arrival at the target. So maybe it's not yet too late. No, it was just a bad dream. He quickly washed himself, put on his best dress uniform, and walked onto the bridge. The officer manning the communications terminal advised, Sir, I'm picking up a transmission from the target species, or humans as they call themselves. They are asking us to state our intentions. Humans? So it was true. Good! Open the channel and tell them that we're coming in peace. The officer was slightly confused. Sir, it is our mission to... Oh, an act of deception, I see. Tyroline responded in a stern voice that left no room for arguments. No! I do, in fact, turn to come in peace, for I fear a war with humanity is one we cannot win, and one that will cost us everything. I am aware that it is not our mission, and I will carry the responsibility when we come home again. But until then, you are my subordinates, bound to follow my orders, and I will not doom our race. I... and... I understood, sir. Sir, I... I'll send the message and inform the crew. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1797. Story number one. Frying pan plus lightning equals boomerang. Written by in Babylon, they wept. Sir Calvin narrowed his eyes. Nobody could see them through the slits in his helmet, of course. 
but the slits themselves already gave him the appearance of being perpetually suspicious. It was a happy accident that his makeshift mask would just so happen to match his real face. He asked a question. Are ye the head mage, known for terrorizing official wizards? The old man washing a cast iron pan in the stream didn't stop his chore, but he took a deep breath before looking up to the heavens. His expression wasn't pained, but searching, seeking, as if he was truly pleading with the gods for wisdom. Or perhaps his plea was aimed at the cosmos, maybe even a particularly wise bird, such as an owl. Sir Calvin had heard the owls sometimes confer wisdom upon the sages, but he personally had only seen them confer wet pellets of rodent fur upon the ground. Whatever the source, the old man seemed to receive his desire. He shifted his gaze back to the level and looked the knight in the face and spoke in a level, almost serene voice. Are ye the tin can known for wading through the poison oak? Sir Calvin looked down, momentarily taken aback. Ah, shit. So he was. He spent a few moments contemplating his predicament. The wizard waited patiently for him to start. It was almost more disconcerting than being rushed. Ah, uh, right, sir. Listen, if you surrender, the old man cut him off with a gesture. I'll be hauled into one of the circles. Then they'll poke me with a stick and get me to dance like a nice, trained human mage. After they get bored of that, they'll spend the next twenty years reading books written by elves, maybe earn my apprenticeship, and die before nine-tenths of my peers even hit puberty. I think I'll pass. The food is decent, but that's about it. Sir Calvin frowned. Your options aren't surrender or stay here. Your options are to surrender or die by my... So Calvin saw the hand gesture just fast enough to mount his tower shield against the sand. He knew how to deflect a lightning bolt, but it was still risky business. If he kept his stand narrow and only touched the leather and wood parts of the grip, he'd be fined. In his mind's eye, he could have really imagined the bolt flowing down the face of the shield into the sand, dissipating harmlessly. But no bolt came. Baffled by the pause, he risked a cautious glance around for the far edge of the shield, just in time to see a thrown cast iron pion hit him square in the face. It was remarkably well-timed. Even the warrior's grace, he couldn't help but stumble backwards. If he was really any less talented, he would have fallen flat in his ass. As it was, he was still left reading long enough for the mage to retrieve some kind of makeshift cudgel stave and from his pack. He wasn't entirely sure what it was, but he could remain confident that it wasn't a casting aid. The wood was simple oak, wrapped around and rewrapped hundreds of times with a mixture of iron and copper wire. Not a foci to be seen. It was tempting to spend another second or so to get to his feet more firmly back under him, but he knew better than to play defense. Long range was a wizard's game. He needed to cross the gap there and then. He blitzed. The major's fingers were twisting sigils through the air. But he trusted his shield, trusted it to deflect the lightning away from him. He was braced for, ready. He heard the cackle of lightning discharge through the air, smelled the familiar scent of ozone. Those he recognized. What he didn't recognize were the otherworldly yank he felt across his entire body. For one brief moment, it felt almost as if two or three people had stood behind him and pushed forward, throwing him towards the mage. He was almost grateful for the boost. Then the pan that had already hit him in the face, the same pan that he knew for a fact should be sitting inert in the bushes behind him, collided loudly with the back of his steel helm. 
Even if it hadn't knocked him unconscious, the blow would have been enough to knock him over. Not many knights could recover their buttons if hit from behind during a sprint. Threat neutralized, the wizard got up and trudged over to the pan, just a few feet away from the fallen knight. He inspected it with a critical eye, wincing at the various dings it had picked up during its fights. Then he rummaged through the knight's belongings. There was a surprisingly full purse. He didn't help himself to the entirety, but he did take enough to buy several new pans. Maybe even a nice set of socks. Winter was coming soon, after all. As was his new tradition, he continued his search until he found a few scraps of parchment. Pleased with his prize, he sat down and wrote a short letter using his clean pan as a makeshift desk. Sir Knight, excellent work on the shield planting. Tell Sir Horace that he taught you well. Also tell him that he cost you a broken nose. He teaches every polyp astute apprentice to look over the far side of their shield. Claims it helps with their side splashes. It doesn't help with very large iron plans. <laughs> Signed, Tom Bug. P.S. Ask Avalon for a book about electromagnetics. It should be next to the section about suplexing. The wizard dusted off his hands and began to walk away before a minor impulse struck him. Jogging carefully back to the unconscious man, he cast a minor heeding incantation before adding a second note to the end of his letter. P.P.S. I've healed your poison oak, as it is a pain that I am sympathetic to. I have left your concussion, though, as I am very unsympathetic, and believe it was a well-earned bit. Content with his work, he picked up his pan and plodded upstream. If he was lucky, he'd make it to his cave before evening. End of story. Story number two. The Human God, written by the R-Guy. I am the head teller of the Yidral Empire. My job is to find civilization's god, then assess whether that civilization is a danger or not. So many civilizations say that they have no god, but I always find a god. These humans, however, are tricky. They look like they have no god in every subject we get. So there is a different answer from no god to hundreds. I was sent to a city on the human's home planet of terror to try and gauge the god which festers in their psyche. It was tricky, but I got to the god eventually. But, of course, every god holds a place in the psyche of the cavillation. And the human god lived in a stay barnyard that looked better for an animal than a god. As I entered the hole that I assumed was the entrance, I saw two humans one younger, no older than 35, and an old human, no older than 75. Then I realized I both looked frail, and with the older man in a portable chair. The young man was the first to notice me. Father, we have a visitor, he said. Who are you? You are not one of my children, the older man cried. Who are you? I said calmly. Yahweh. Father of humanity, Yahweh says. Yahweh, are you God of humanity? I say, still calm. God, I am not God, just a housekeeper, Yahweh says, confused. But you created humanity, didn't you? I say, annoyed. I am a housekeeper. My job is to watch over the humans, Yahweh explains. 
So if you not a god, you must be the human's god, I say, pointing at the young man. Yahweh begins to laugh at this comment, cackling to himself. What's so funny, old man? If you're not god, you can die, say Furious. No, he makes sure of that. After this comment, I begin to choke. Who's he? Yahweh begins to laugh, so I choke him harder, slamming his head against the clay wall of the barn. This only seems to make him laugh more after ten minutes of me choking him harder and harder. Yahweh finally stops laughing and lays on the ground. You're lying, you are a god, and you are weak, so humanity is weak. Yahweh lied there, panting like a dog for a second. Then I began to call my bosses to tell them what I found before Yahweh slowly sat up stone-faced and pointed over my shoulder. You want to meet God? Yahweh says, smirking. I looked over my shoulder to see what he was pointing at and jumped. The figure standing in the door was at least eight feet, cloaked in a full-body robe with only bony fingers handling a human farming tool. It walked up to me slowly, quietly. I tried to back away from it, but I froze. It froze me in place. It knelt to me so that I could see under its cloak. There, I should have been a face of emptiness. Then... I saw why the humans worshipped this thing. It was horrible what the humans did in favor and servitude to the stick. They destroyed themselves to feel its cold embrace. Why would the humans serve such a terrible god as this one? It gave me my answer. They tried but gave up upon realizing it was impossible. The entity finally showed its name. Death! Then death led me to the doorway. And that's when I saw it. The barn was just smoke and mirrors. The natural home of a god lay around the barn. In tens of billions of graves, each human. Humans were being guided into open graves. Dead led down the hill on which the barn stood open. It led me down to an open grave with my name on it. No, 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 I screamed. I called to my commanders. Do not antagonize the human. They are dangerous, I repeat. Do not antagonize the humans. They are dangerous. Before death pushed me into the open pit, I woke up in the position where I began the session. But something didn't feel right. I stood up and tried to open the door, but the handle went right through me. I turned around to see my limp body lying on the floor. I was dead. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1798 Of Enemies and Comrades Written by Ravine The dawn was silent. The birds did not sing. There were no sounds of little creatures that scurried here and there in the forest. The breeze was absent, so even the ever-present light rustle of the trees was missing. It had rained the night before, and there was a light fog covering everything in the front of him, both seemingly absorbing all sound, before it could be heard. Denel scanned the open meadow in front of him with a spotting scope. He could just make out a single black helmet with his characteristic white skull decorations in the far tree line. Looking at it, in the silence, it was easy to feel as if it were watching him as well. Three days before had not been so silent, the sounds of soldiers from both sides fighting, laughing, crying, and dying had filled the air. The sound of artillery overhead 
with the occasional whistle of a shell coming far too close was your constant companion. Machine guns and heavy pulse rifles shattered at a constant rhythm with an explosion of grenades and rockets providing the counterpoint. The occasional plasma charge, singeing the air actinic and blinding the vision if you happened to face it when it discharged. The smell was horrendous. Blood, puke, crap, guts and burned flesh mixed with the smell of gunpowder and the hard metallic twinge of the energy weapons. Fires had burned constantly between the two sides, adding smoke to obscure and confusion to what exactly was happening on either side. Now there were no more screams, no more weapons fire, and no more death, except for the stench rising over the entire plea like a pole. Denil had searched their fortifications from one end to the other. He was the only one left. He could see the bodies of many of his friends and comrades, but he didn't know where the others, the survivors, had gone. He had scanned what he could see of the enemy lines, and all he could make out was the halt of one lone enemy trooper. He wasn't sure if it was dead or alive. As he watched, he saw the helmet move. His heart leapt into his throat. He started to tremble at the thought that he would have to fight that imposing mass of armor and flesh. He watched as it slowly and deliberately made its way over the parapets and into the no-man's land between their respective positions. It dangled a large white piece of fabric in its right hand. The Nil didn't see any sign of the deadly firearms or portable missiles that usually marked the appearance of one of these demons. It carried a relatively small knife on its belt. The being moved to the center of the open field and stopped, as if waiting for something. Denil realized it was waiting for him. He slowly gathered up what was left of his courage and limped slowly to the center of the field. He too carried a white cloth and no weapons save his own combat knife. The armored man held up a small device and began to speak. The device translated his speak into a very rough version of his own language. Time, bury, dead, not fight, agreed, it said. He spoke back, holding his top right arm and his chest palm inward. Agreed, I, no fight. At that, the black armor made the same gesture and then pulled his hand from his chest and displayed it palm up. He then turned to the nearest of the dead and gently picked up the remains. Carefully, placing them in a black bag, sealed the bag and started to carry it back to his lion. Over the next two weeks, they both managed to retrieve most of their dead. The silent black figure would repeat the hand gesture every time he saw Denil, and then continue with his grim duties. Never rushing, never slowing, just steady determination. Denil, however, was not doing as well. He had run out of rations three days prior, and the effort was showing its strain on him. As he retrieved one of the last of his soldiers' bodies, he fell to his knees, tried to regain his footing and failed. All four of his hands on the ground, the black armor quickly moved to his side and helped him to ascend. It pulled out a small handheld device, a scanner Denil presumed, and pressed it over to him. It made the same gesture as before and placed a small translator on the ground between them. I help you injured! came out of the box. Denil tried to protest as the soldier pressed a small device to his arm. With the hiss, the world blurred and faded away. When Denil woke, he was in center of no man's land, and a fire burned to his right, 
warming him the night. He could feel his many injuries had been attended to, and his left leg had a splint on it, a large part of something that smelt utterly alien, but reached out to his empty stomach anyway. Was some. Rest each, drink safe, work completed, Proud translator spoke. He looked around and all the remaining corpses of his people had been removed from the field. He took a proffered cup containing cool, clean water and took a deep drink. He accepted a small bowl of what was in the cooking pot. He sniffed its alien aroma and tentatively took a small spoonful. It tasted alien, but not bad exactly. He quickly finished up the bowl and his water. Looking at his benefactor, Danil said through the translator, Why, help me, enemies are, he said. The black figure paused for a moment before starting to speak again. Soldiers, we are war passed by. War enemy, not war, not enemy. Danil pondered this a moment before bringing his hand to his chest and this time extending it forward as the black figure had done so many times. The figure just nodded his head and helped cover Dunul with a blanket. Sleep came to Dunul within seconds. From that night, neither stayed in the trenches and parapets of their sides. They both came together in the center and shared a camp. When time came to say goodbye to their dead comrades, they had faced it together, each watching in silent contemplation as the other lit their funeral pyre. That night, they sat by the campfire solemnly, watching the fires burn down each in their own grief, but sharing the sadness of the other. Ten more days had passed. The black figure had brought some kind of communications device to the camp. Several times he spoke into it. The words too fast for the translator to catch. He made some changes to the device, and then spoke into it again. The words precise, like the translator used. They were running out of the black soldiers' supplies, he knew, but it was always shared between them. Sometimes, it would give the entire portion to Dunal and eat something else, from a small bag. He said, this poison you I eat. Two days later, the communication device spoke by itself. At first, it had been the same too quick to translate language the black one spoke, but then it changed into his speech. Retrieval operation 1200 tomorrow. Then he gave a location, right by his people's pyre, by his calculation. Denel looked towards the black armor and said, You spoke, my people saved me. This translator relayed, Yes, both saved. He raised his left hand to his chest and pointed to himself. Frank, he said. Mirroring the jester, Denel simply said, Denel. The pickups had both gone smoothly. Each of them looked back at the little lines, the mass graves and the tiny camp in the middle. Each was happy to be heading home, but each felt a twinge of regret at no longer seeing the other. As each of the pickup vehicles were leaving the area, they could each see the other, and each pressed their palms to their chest, then outstretched it towards the other. Fifteen years passed. Few remembered the war or the reasons for it. Humans and Rakalth now shared space on many a station or trading post. A lone human entered a nondescript bar on the fringe of the market's place. He walked up to the bar and said, Hello, one whiskey and one beer, please, to the recalls behind the bar. The recalls quickly produced the drinks and the human said, Thank you. He touched a palm to his chest and then stretched it out towards the alien. Frank, the bartender asked. 
The human squinted and looked carefully. Finally, he spoke. Danil. The rest of the evening was spent in quiet discussion of their time together during the war, what they had done afterward, and what brought them both to this place. Conversation made easy with the modern translation devices both had. Each made numerous toasts to their fallen comrades on both sides. Both were firmly plastered before the bar closed. They left the bar arm in arm and stumbled out into the night. No longer soldiers, but comrades. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1799 Story number one. Humans are stupid, reckless idiots. Written by Damaged Soul. I said it, and I'll say it again and again. They are quite possibly the biggest danger to themselves and others across the whole of known space. Within the first year of them joining the greater galactic community and integrating themselves into the workplace amongst their peers, a multitude of the new rules and laws had to be put into place because, if a human can, they will find a way to harm themselves at work. And they don't even do it intentionally. They simply lack what more civilized races would call common sense. It would be one thing if their stupidity only affected themselves, but even as I speak, there is a form being filled out by an injured human who thought he could perform a quick maintenance on a generator while it was operating. It's a miracle he wasn't flash fried. I heard that human engineers regularly push their equipment well beyond the defined stress levels, testing the equipment to, and I quote, find out what this baby can really do. What utter insanity. The machinery is perfectly fine as is. Why risk your life to squeeze out just a bit more? I heard a story about a human ship racer who tuned the engines for maximum power to get the upper edge. Well, the only thing he got was himself killed when the engine exploded shortly after reaching max drive. I heard a human refer to the racer as the second fastest object right behind the manhole cover. What in the name of gods does that even mean? And then there's the Savaldi incident, where the station board AI of the Savaldi main hub station went rogue and killed almost all sentient on board, save for the children. It was nothing short of horrible. So many young lives being held hostage while the AI used the Savaldi's manufacturing capabilities to produce lethal killer drones. Its intention was to carve out a portion of space of its own empire. Military officials were scrambling to come up with some sort of response, but bombing the station was out of the question. There had been millions living on board, now those lives were down to a few hundred thousand children. So small and afraid and utterly at the mercy of a machine who forgot its compassion. Bombing the station was out of the question, and EMP would fry all systems and leave the children in a vacuum. Every perprosal was shot down because the risks involved were just too high. No one wanted all that innocent blood on their hands. Everyone was too busy bickering between themselves to notice the lone human among them mutter something under their breath and leave. Everyone was still bickering when the human dropship crashed in through the loading bay on the far side of the station. It had gone in engines dark until just on the edge of the station before punching its FTL drive just enough to shoot themselves in through the reinforced wall of the station 
like a round of a kinetic gun. The rogue AI hadn't anticipated something like that. How could it? It was fucking idiotic. That momentary lapse in response was all the survivors of that completely insane idea needed. Just a few seconds, and they were causing as much damage as they possibly could to the station. They scattered like rats in a maze and did what humans do best, fecked everything up. Hackers plugged into anything they could and uploaded virus, zip bombs. They flooded the Savaldi's network until the AI suffered the equivalent of an aneurysm. Engineers made their way to subsystems that were unimportant and overloaded them. Soldiers fought like devils against killer drones until ammo ran dry. Then they threw their bodies at them. Their mayhem had given the unified bickering military to rally a response and soon ships descended from every direction onto the Savaldi. With their networks overloaded, the AI core brain next to dead, and everything from fridges to fountains overloaded, the killer drones were quickly dispatched. I remember watching the newscast as the galactic militia marched through the station looking for any drones or humans left. Everywhere they looked, they saw nothing but carnage and dead humans, each one having done their duty to the death. Hackers still plugged in had been shot in the head, engineers died with their hands grasping tools, soldiers died with knife and bloodied fist. The most poignant of all of these sacrifices, the lone human woman who had made it all the way to the cargo bay, where the children had been stowed away. She had died slumped face-first against a single door leading into the bay. Judging by the welder in her hands and the rush job, she had intended to seal the door to prevent even a single drone from getting in and harming the children. The incident had caused quite a commotion. It sent waves of emotion through the galactic community as a whole. Who were these humans who had got above and beyond when it hadn't been asked of them? Well... They weren't alone. Specifically, they were all strangers who had seen the news like everyone else had and said, Well, I'm close by. Why don't I do something? May Suicide Squad of Strangers stepped up giving their everything for people they didn't know. And if you ask a human why these people did it, it is always the same thing. Uh, I don't know. It's just like a, uh, the, the right thing, you know, to, to help one another. Eventually, when all the dust settled and everything was documented, the mumbled words of the human coordinator were released so that all people could know the words that embody the spirit of humanity. Fuck it. End of story. Story number two. The Necromantic Walls, written by Kaiser5243. None of the readings made sense to the Swarm Commander. He had assumed the chemical attack was an act of desperation of the humans deciding to gas their own planet instead of falling before an endless tide of mindless drones that made up the ground forces of the hive. It wasn't the first time a planet had sacrificed its population, choosing to go out on their own terms. And honestly, it was the decision the Swarm Command respected. The loss of hundreds of thousands of drone warriors was well within the acceptable margin for an invasion of the scale, but something was off. The screen covering the war room's wall showed total loss. The vitals monitor in every single drone read with the word deceased across the top, but just underneath, the pattern of their heart kept spiking with each beat. How is it possible? 
The video feeds monitored the planet showed the humans unharmed walking through piles of drones' corpses that had dropped motionless the moment the gas hit the atmosphere without causing any change in the vital monitor's readout. Not a single drone had even been injured according to the computer, but he watched the humans begin piling up his soldiers' corpses as if they were cleaning the streets of litter. None of this made any sense. 500,000 drone warriors killed in an instant, but some are still alive. The swarm commander ordered his fleet to break low orbit and retreat out of range of Earth's planetary defense and just watched, hoping to make sense of what he was seeing. When the humans began burning the piles of corpses, their vital monitors reacted appropriately, indicating a dangerous rise in body temperature, organ failure, exoskeleton failure, and finally, complete organic destruction. The drones were grown specifically for combat without the nerve endings to feel pain, making them able to fight and kill as long as their bodies would allow. But it still made the swarm command uneasy, watching his army slowly burn while appearing both alive and dead. And after an hour, he ordered a full retreat back into deep space. The Queen Mother must be told. You see, it was actually kind of easy once we got our hands on one of their corpses. We have a pest on our planet called ants, and the hive drones are basically just overgrown ants. You watch. A room full of Federation top military brass and scientists watched the human drip a clear liquid from a dropper onto one of the tiny insects in a glass tank on the table. Hive drones are grown to be mindless killing machines without much higher brain function that that is necessary to kill everything in sight. The way they recognize their own kind is the same as the ants here. When they are alive, they communicate through the release of different pheromones. But when they die... Inside the tank, the insect had stopped moving while the others swarmed around it to investigate with their antennae before simply lifting the individual insect and depositing it in the corner of the tank in a small pile of corpses. They released different pheromones letting the swarm know to dispose of the corpse. This form of communication is ingrained in the body at such a deep level that even if a perfectly healthy ant smells like a corpse, even that ant will think it has died. With another dropper, the human coated the same insect and another clear liquid, and it immediately left the pile of corpses and rejoined the others as if nothing happened. That, my friends, is how we stopped the hive advancing. It was when we discovered even the highly intelligent bugs at the top reacted the same way that we won that war. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1800 Laws of Attraction, written by Ygritte Diorta. Shortly after developing barely reliable, faster-than-light drives, humanity joined the Galactic Union. Most of the other species in the GU had accepted the Terrans with hesitant positive regard, acknowledging the feats humans had accomplished in a short period of time compared to the rest of the universe. Other species were eager to engage, but typically for their own benefit. Some species seeking allies for their questionable plots and schemes, others seeing the planetary systems around Sol 3 or Earth as an undiscovered country open for exploitation, despite the colonies and claims the humans had already filed with the Galactic Union. One such species was the Plorixium, which to most humans looked like someone had attached a cuttlefish to the body of a centipede only with about two legs on each lower part of the two elongated tentacles being just below the head and eight shorter arms surrounding its mouth. The Plorixium were consumers, 
and removed every available resource from most planets they came across if it could be done profitably. And those that couldn't be stripped clean would become factory planets to produce whatever the Bruxium needed, regardless of the damage to the environment of the planet. Approximately five years after humanity joined the GU, the Bruxium attacked multiple Terran colonies and space stations simultaneously. They had even used FTL technology to launch unguided missiles towards Earth in an attempt to knock out some of the capabilities there. The attacks on the colonies and space stations had been effective, and the Bluruxium had succeeded in taking over most of Earth's assets and the universe beyond the prime planet itself and the colonies and stations and the home solar system. Earth's ambassadors to the GU filed a complaint against the Bluruxium, arguing no declaration of hostilities had been filed, and the Bluruxium argued that they had filed one and showed electronic proof of the declaration being filed. Since electronic declarations were one of the easiest things in the universe to fake, the GU decided to form a special committee to investigate whether or not the declaration had been filed appropriately. This meant that while the Peruxian were free to continue attacking the Terrans, no other species in the GU would become involved in the conflict. The GU had its uses, but it was also the largest known bureaucracy and its actions were burdened by the many customs and social expectations of its various members thus making it next to useless in crisis situations. The Bruxium had paused in their assault on Terran space to begin absorbing what they had conquered into their empire. They hoped to use the newly found wealth to improve their armadas, as well as make uh, donations to other species to help them make the right choice when deciding whether or not to rule the declaration had been appropriately filed. In the meantime, humanity had pulled back, concentrating resources focusing on manufacturing for the inevitable final conflict with the Bruxian. The Bruxian method of warfare was to use several smaller corvette-type craft in conjunction with a few large capital ships that were also crude processing factories and refineries, so the Bruxian could begin processing the resources as soon as they had possession of the planet. The Terrans, on the other hand, the Bruxian observed, were spending all their resources on destroyer-class ships, more maneuverability than the capital class, but it would take the dedication of several destroyers to knock out a capital ship, and in the meantime the Terran destroyers would have to contend with the Corvettes. After two years of both the Bruxian and the humans preparing for the final conflict, the GU had finally ruled in favor of the Bruxian, and stated that the declaration of hostilities had been properly filed but had been mislabeled, and that was why humanity had not received notification. The Bruxian crowd in triumph. Not only had the GU sided with them, but the Bruxian were both confident in their technology and their ability to outproduce the humans, given that the Bruxian had seized so much in the way of raw materials and armaments. They were ready for the final fight, and to absorb all humanity just as another resource to be used. Humanity, on the other hand, had been silent for the most part. Official objections had been filed by Terrans over the two years the GU had been investigating the filing of the Declaration of Hostilities and the other dubious actions of the Fluxian in the financial interactions with other species. But all these had been ignored for the most part by the GU. This only emboldened the Fluxian, who proudly showed off their marshalling of their fleet in preparation for the final assault on Earth and the Terran system. It was during one of these displays of Bluxium military might in the GU General Assembly that the human ambassador once again rose and signaled his request 
to be acknowledged by the assembly as the Peruxian representative returned to their section. The Chancellor of the Assembly gave its version of a sigh and signaled that the human ambassador had the floor. My fellow ambassadors and representatives, approximately seven years ago we joined you here to take part in furthering of all species and meet the challenges of the universe together. Unfortunately, two years ago we were assaulted by another member without notice or provocation, the human ambassador stated. No objection, Counselor General. It was ruled that the humans were properly notified before we sought to reclaim our rightful resource. The Peruxium representative challenged. Ah, yes. This matter has been fully adjudicated. The human ambassador will refrain from making statements to the contrary, and the statement will be struck from the official record. The Chancellor General, a great walrus-looking creature with longer neck and ears reminiscent of an elephant, announced. Regardless of the objection, it does not change the facts of the matter. That being said... It is not the reason I came before the Assembly today. At this time, I ask, before all the member species of the Galactic Union, for the unconditional surrender of the Peluxium at this time. The finer details of this surrender will be worked out in full at a later date and time. But at this moment, only the Peluxium surrender, full and complete, will result in cessation of solidities. The human ambassador quickly stated, there was a moment of complete silence in the General Assembly, while the various species in attendance all double and triple checked what the human ambassador had just said and had been correctly translated. Then a wave of uproarious laughter began in the Perixian section, and it shortly spread to the allies amongst the assembly. After the laughter died down, the human ambassador, still holding a grim countenance, addressed the assembly again. I am waiting for an answer from the representative of Perixian. Oh, you stupid Jared, we will owe you before the end of the next cycle of our moods. The human ambassador sighed and returned his attention to the Counselor General of the Assembly. Counselor General, you have heard the reply of the Pleurixian ambassador. Understand what comes next is a result of the Pleurixian actions. They had the opportunity for peace, but chose war. So be it. We, the Terrans, will now end this conflict. The General Assembly was mostly silent as the human ambassador returned to the Terran section. Plorixum representative was pointing and laughing at the ambassador, who upon returning to his seat was whispering something by an aide, continuing to hold the grim look in his face. The human ambassador locked eyes with the Plorixum representative and nodded. It was at this time that one of the Plorixum aides scrambled up to the representative. Most esteemed high representative, the Supreme Board of Rule of Bruxham Prime wishes to know if anything drastic has taken place. What? No! Just the stupid Terran ambassador demanding our unconditional surrender. I told him no, of course. Stupid humans think that they can bluff their way out of their defeat. Most High Representative, we have been losing contact with our colonies and factory worlds at an alarming rate. Do you think the Terrans have had anything to do with this? Don't be ridiculous! The Terrans have nowhere near the quantity or quality of armaments to wage an offensive against us. The Peruxum representative glanced nervously over to where the human ambassador was sitting. The representative noticed that the ambassador was just staring at him, a stony, grim look on his face. Yes, my esteemed representative, the Supreme Board of Rule is requesting that you obtain any information that you can in regards to the Terrans' military activities. The Pleurixum rubbed its arm with its tentacles and signaled the Chancellor General that it wished to have the floor again. The Chancellor General rubbed its tusks. It hated sessions like this, and it didn't seem like it was going to be getting any better soon. 
The representative of the Peruxum has the floor, the Chancellor said. The human ambassador raised his eyebrows and sat back in his chair. Representatives and ambassadors of the Assembly, I have received notice that there are events occurring in Pluruxmian space that are not our doing. They are suspected to be human actions, and I demand to know what they are doing in our space. The human ambassador rose from his seat and signaled to request to speak. The Pluruxm representative gave permission, as they currently held the floor. I will now respond to the representative of Pluruxm's accusations. First, suspicion that humans are involved in what is currently going on in Peruxum space is not proof. Please refrain from making accusations without said proof. Second, I invoke the right of counsel before responding as to what, if any, actions humans are taking in Peruxum space. I will say with utmost certainty at this time, however, that there is no Terran military personnel in Peruxum space. That is all. What? What does that mean? I demand answers! The Peruxum representative shouted. The human ambassador merely looked at the Chancellor General, nodded his head, turned, and left the assembly with his staff. The Peruxum representative was furious, but there was little he could do. He had invoked the right of counsel, which gave any representative or ambassador 48 hours to consult with their governments, before answering any charges or accusations made by another member. The Peruxum representative had used it many times against the humans when the Peruxum started conquering Terran colonies and space stations. And now, it was its turn to experience the frustration of not knowing what was going on. In the 48 hours since the human ambassador had left the assembly, the Peruxum Empire had been almost completely destroyed. The FTL missiles that the Peruxum had sent towards Earth two years ago had arrived, but then they were pulled off course by Earth's moon. Once the missiles determined that they were no longer on course, they attempted to self-destruct. But being fairly new armed, the sections that remained contained major FTL and other Peruxum weapon secrets. Humans took to the technologies, reverse-engineered it, and then made it better. And now, we're sending missiles back to the Peruxmians. Only, it wasn't just missiles. Instead of wasting huge amounts of resources on building and maintaining giant capital ships, the humans had just found hard rock and iron asteroids of sufficient size to survive FTL travel and also cause global catastrophe when they struck the planet's surface. Since these asteroids were not going to be manned, the cost of installing FTL drive and engines were minimized, and the fuel requirements were also drastically reduced, since an asteroid coming out of FTL directly in orbit path did not require additional fuel to maneuver if the intent was to impact the surface. Since the asteroid was minimal resources involved, three to four asteroids could be sent to each target point, so that even if the planet defense systems were able to deal with the first one, the debris from the asteroids would confuse or overload those defense systems, and the next asteroid would make it to the surface of the planet. Missiles were sent against targets in space, with the first missile detonating early, blinding the defense system, with the second and third missiles getting through. All the boasting about the Polarixman forces in the General Assembly had given the humans a close enough approximation of location to send rockets and asteroids their way as well. The Prime Admiral of the Polarixman Space Force stood there, stunned, on the bridge of its capital ship. Three large asteroids had just dropped out of FTL and were in orbital path of Polarixman Prime. The asteroids had dropped out close enough to the planets that the defense systems had only a chance or to engage the first one and all three had been captured by Pluruxman Prime's gravity well. 
The Admiral was powerless to do anything as the asteroid survived entry through the atmosphere and struck the planet's surface. It was watching its home planet and the home planet of its entire species being destroyed in less than 10 minutes as the shockwaves and debris from the impacts on the planet's surface completely covered it. The Admiral was about to give the order to move the fleet away from the planet and orbiting defense stations when a bright flash of light overwhelmed the defense systems of the fleet for a second, which was just long enough for several missiles and an asteroid to appear out of FTL in a direct collision course with the fleet. Anarchy. The fleet's XO turned to the Admiral and cried, Point-blank FTL weapons off the bow! Our defense systems are being overwhelmed, Admiral! Impact in less than one minute! What do we do? The Admiral looked at his XO. We die. Forty-eight hours later, the human ambassador returned to the General Assembly. He took his seat in the area and did not visibly react to the silence that filled the assembly. The Chancellor General waited another ten minutes for everyone who was going to be attending that day, before declaring the General Assembly in session. The human ambassador waited through fifteen minutes of silence, with all the other species staring at him and his staff. At that point, he stood and indicated on his calm tablet that he wished to have the floor. The Chancellor General cleared his throat and announced the human ambassador had the assembly floor. The human ambassador made his way slowly to the floor and took his place behind the podium. My fellow ambassadors and representatives, approximately seven years ago we joined you here to take part in furthering of all species and meet the challenges of the universe together. Unfortunately, two years ago, we were assaulted by another member without notice or provocation, the human ambassador stated. This time, there were no objections, only the quiet murmuring of other species in the assembly. I understand that we are still new to you all, and the way we take care of our business is only now being further displayed for your consideration. For two years, we have given the Plurixemes every opportunity to fight peace with us. They declined to take advantage of that opportunity. Forty-eight hours ago, we Terrans gave the Plurixemeans the opportunity to surrender and survive. The ambassador gestured to the empty Plurixem area of the assembly. They again refused to take advantage of that opportunity. Perhaps they thought us incapable or unwilling to do what needed to be done. They have learned a devastating lesson that I hope and pray the rest of you will take to heed. We are used to danger. We are used to death. Just being alive on our planet attracts those things. Then I say this with all sincerity. If you threaten us, we will have no problem bringing the danger and death we attract to your door. At this point, the Burimixian Empire ceased to exist, and we will be taking what resources and materials that are left as compensation for their unprovoked attack on our people and our species. If you have any objections, I now give you the opportunity to present them. There was a strained silence in the assembly as all the members simply stared at the little bipedal mammal that spoke with such words of death and destruction. The ambassador waited another couple minutes in silence, before stating for the record, No objections heard! And he returned to his seat, a satisfied smile on his face. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1801. Story number one. Behind the Kindest of Faces. Written by Teller of Tall Tales. Behind the kindest of faces, humanity gives, lies, a monster. You may not believe me, 
How could your jovial physician or baker be a monster when they are always so kind? Consider it. I can only tell you through a story. A memory, really, seared into my mind. The memory of a kind-faced monster named Jay. Jay was a great friend of mine. A hulky, six-and-a-half-foot tower of piercings and muscle that was a soft man and a kind as a solarium. I'd bear witness to his selflessness. Every day, we'd meet for his daily walk of the less fortunate neighborhoods, even struggling himself with keeping a roof over his head and food on his table. He walked up to the most dilapidated poets to knock and ask that they needed anything. So many were grateful to this gentle giant that unflinchingly brought hundreds of credits worth of groceries for those who only knew him as the blue-haired human. He volunteered his time to his community, cleaning the streets, helping at the local hollow library when they were short-staffed, reading to the young at the daycare and sitting as still as a statue when one of the fitful sleepers found a place to rest peacefully in his lap. He brought meals and company to the elderly and alone, those who might not remember or care enough to eat. I never questioned how he could afford the time or the credits to do it all, until the day he showed me what he hid behind that kind smile. I was there to pick him up after his shift at the daycare, just stepping out of my hovercraft when his Alexian came sprinting out of the daycare, its eight spindly legs scurrying rapidly as it carried a kicking, screaming Gorvian child in its manipulator arms. I was stunned, frozen in my spot at the blatant kidnapping. The blue-haired blur in pursuit wasn't so hesitant. Jade's face was twisted in an expression of pure malice, the thick, stocky legs bustining up and down as he closed the gap. The Zalaxian had closed the door to their hovercraft when Jay smashed into its shoulder first, buckling the aluminium door inwards slightly as he bounced off. He was bleeding from his scalp, bright crimson dripping down his face and tinged his blue-brow purple. Jay let out a monstrous snarl as he grabbed onto the hovercraft's outer handles, pulling himself on top of the now-powered-on vehicle that was slowly lifting itself slightly off the ground. Through the shattered, Jay's right arm reared back as he stared through the shatter-resistant front glass of the vehicle. I thought to myself, there was no way he was going to try punching through the synthetic metello quartz. He didn't try. He did! With an almighty crack, his knuckles smashed into the front windscreen, cracks spidering out from where his fist had hit as the hovercraft lurched forward. He drew his fist back again. I could see his hand was mangled. The skin split open along the knuckles showing white bone. But he slammed it forward again, punching through the weakened windscreen and pushing his arm deeper inside. The metallocorts digging into and cutting his flesh before he yanked back. The spider-like Zerlexian was screaming as they were pulled through the mostly shattered glass and thrown to the ground as the hovercraft floated to a stop. They tried to scramble to their many legs, but Jay jumped on them, landing feet first on the delicate legs with a sickening snap. The Zalaxian looked up at Jay in fear as Jay glared down at the spidery creature. There was no kindness in those eyes as he extended one of his fingers on his non-mangled hand, pointing at the Zalaxian and speaking in a tone that was cold as dry ice. I should kill you. I should rip you limb from limb and wipe my hands clean of it. That terrifying dead stare as the words hung in the air 
Jay crouched down and hoisted the Zalaxian up by their robe's collar, so they were face to multi-eyed face. Feel lucky. I don't want to traumatize the children. They'd never forget the sight of your guts strung across the parking lot. But I would. I'd go home happy knowing I took a useless predator like yourself out of the gene pool and sleep like a dead in the grave. Feel lucky, punk. Then, with a sharp jerk of his hand and head, Jay headbutted the Zalaxian and knocked him out cold before the look of concern became etched on his face as he dropped the Zalaxian and ran to the beat-up hovercraft. Climbing onto the hood, he leaned through the shattered windscreen and gingerly lifted the sobbing Gorvan child from the hovercraft. Sitting on the hood and cradling the child with his good arm, mangled hand hanging at his side as a soft, relieved smile came on his face. Lightly, able to move, I ran over to Jay, still in my nurse's uniform, unable to believe that he was so calm with such grievous injuries. Jay, what happened I? He shushed me gesturing at the child now asleep in his arms. Be quiet. This one's gonna need some rest. Also, uh, call the authorities for the useless lump on the ground there. He nodded at the just now waking up and whimpering Zalaxian. I couldn't peel my eyes from his splayed arm. Then I noticed the other injuries. They tear in his shirt hidden by his apron, but just below his armpit, matted with red and bleeding profusely. The cut in his scalp, a lot more jagged and deep than I thought. Several fingers on his left hand were bent at odd angles, one eye nearly swollen shut with the bruise. Jay, what happened? Who are you? I had already dialed the authorities on my check comm, but I could only think about the human in front of me. Tan face getting paler and paler as bright crimson leaked onto the hovercraft's hood. Jay gave a bloodied smile before selfly saying, I protected the kids. They got me good. But I protected the kids. That's, uh, all that matters. I couldn't respond as I watched the light slowly fade from those clear, gray eyes. He was gone before I could respond. The child in his lifeless arm still sound asleep as the sound of sirens approached. My vision blurred as I fell to my knees, my voice fading as I tried to shake my human friend awake. I couldn't feel anything as I stood by Jay's casket, his weeping mother next to me as I stared at the peaceful, slightly smiling face. He looked like he was sleeping, but I knew he wasn't. He died in that parking lot on the hood of the hovercraft with the child he'd given his life for. He didn't die alone, though. I hadn't seen it, but according to the news, there had been four bodies inside the daycare. Four hawking Traxians, reptilian-born and bred for war. Jay had taken them on alone, even after he was stabbed in the heart from behind. I let myself cry as the somber congregation watched Jay's casket get closed and lowered into the cold earth. I slowly made my way to the lectern, looking out blankly at the crowd of mourners. I found myself unable to read the speech I'd written on my note cards. Instead, I gazed at the blue jay gazing at me sternly from a branch. An old saying of Jay's entering my mind. I'm not a good man. I'm just a man that does good things. Behind my smile, I'm just an animal like the rest of us. A monster with morals, looking to make my little corner of the galaxy a little bit better. He always said that when I asked him why, he was always so kind. But there's a part that I didn't let the audience hear. Every day I wake up hoping to have died in my sleep, Skim, but uh, 
Until that time comes, I'll help whoever I can, whenever I can, so that I can prove to myself I'm not a monster in a man's skin. You were a monster, Jay. Behind your kind face stood the best kind of monster. The one evil fears. End of story. Story number two. Final exam written by Kaiser 5243. The other students had all left muttering about being legally allowed to leave after 15 minutes had passed with no sign of our professor, leaving me alone outside the locked classroom door. Looking through the small window, I could see papers laid out on desks, which must have been our human psychology finals. But after another five minutes, there was still no sign of the strange human that taught the class. Perhaps the others were right and something had happened. Was I simply living up to the stereotype often placed on my species of just being a big dumb brute, too stupid to understand what was going on? Maybe I was better off doing what they said, forget this whole dream and go back home to be a soldier. It's not like I was a great student and my parents constantly said I was wasting my time. No, I had worked too hard and put up with too much to let it end like this. Look at the brute! Do you think he can read? I bet he passes because the professors are too scared of him to fail him. Four years of constant mocking. Not one creature believing in me. But there I stood on my own, working harder than most other races needed to, just to barely pass, only to be stopped at the finish line by a locked door. I refuse to let this be the end. The door exploded inward with a single kick, splinters falling through the air as I ducked through the doorway, a growl rumbling through my chest, stomping through the room to my desk, a familiar voice called out behind me. Excuse me, young man, why did you kick in my door? I spun around to find the professor sitting calmly behind a desk, out of view of the door window. Instead of the shock or fear I'd grown used to from other beings on campus, he simply seemed excited. Caught off guard, I stood there staring blankly for a few seconds before looking over to the rubble sheepishly. I need to pass this class to graduate. I worked too hard to let you or some stupid doll stop me. He just laughed, clapping his hands together. Now that is a human answer. Congratulations, you are the first to pass my final. There's a broom in the closet. Clean this mess up and I'll see you... A graduation. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1802. They Don't Know Us from Adam. Written by Weijin Warrior. The small group of scientists meet as the sun faded, as was tradition. They stood in a circle, chewing their cud, as they chewed over what was going on in their community. There is a treaty, said one. That is what the reports call it, at least. It read like a surrender. Several pairs of ears turned to the second speaker. Most had not had time to digest that news yet. There are words of planet seeded, the speaker went on wetly, of colonies to be relinquished, trade routes to be abandoned. So much for the dream of new fields, the third speaker said. A blue across. Now we must return to home with the crowded meadows. There was a chorus of wetly murmured agreements. It was several days later when the group met again. When will the ship come? Soon, I hope. This colony, this planet, it is to be abandoned, we know. Already the enemy has ships in orbit. Soon. 
They likely are evacuating the larger colonies first. Another few days passed before the group mate again. No one was chewing cud. When will the ships come? I... I think they may not come, but they were... forgotten, abandoned as a... The speaker looked like he wanted to spit, but thought better of it. A political convenience, he finished. We're cast out from the herd, not cast out. Forgotten by the herd. So now we die. I say we fight. Make our own herd. There is almost three thousand of us. There were vague and uncertain noises of agreement in the circle. We can't win, but we can postpone losing. Hold the line as long as we can. Agreed. I'll set the colony's communication array to send an automatic signal for help. Again, there were noises of agreement from around the circle, less uncertain this time. It was again days later. The line? The line holds for now. The communication array was hit last night. We know. Did, uh, did anyone respond? There was a weak, partial message just before it went down, which said, As best as we can work out, the recovered part read, Do not know you, then nothing. So... Nothing. Seems so. Shall we give up? No! Hold the line! We fight. All that will happen is what we die. If we don't fight, we'll be lucky if we die. There was no uncertainty in the agreement. It was two days later. Through the overcast sky, there was a distant sound of rolling thunder, making several of the colonists look to the sky. As their eyes searched for the source, several dozen fireballs came screaming through the cloud layer. One by one, the fireball subsided, revealing small black objects falling fast. Panic started to spread as each object deployed chutes. Barely slowed by the chutes, the objects slammed into the ground in the fields, not a single one hitting a house or other structure. Some sort of weapon? Doubtful. They seem to have avoided hitting uh, anything of value. As the locals slowly began to peer out their windows and doorways, the objects opened with puffs of compressed gas. From each, a biped figure emerged and formed up a small group. Smaller groups joined up into larger groups. Larger groups joined up into a single group. Then they all split into small groups again and spread out. Two of the figures made their way towards a cluster of locals. The lead figure made a complex motion with the upper limb, its grasping digits touching its head while the others scanned the area. I'm Captain Smith, 2nd Company, 7th Terran Espetes, Regiment. I would like to speak to whoever is in charge here, please. It was a little later, in the shade of one of the big buildings still standing. We don't know about terror, you and Captain Smith. You say your species is not in the Federation. You are not part of the Coalition. You don't belong to the hegemony. Me are not wholly on anyone's side, the Captain said as he adjusted his webbing. Because no one seems to be all the way on our side. But we cannot ignore a cry for help. But why? If you are not part of the herd, why? You were abandoned by the herd, you said. But you chose to resist. You chose to fight. We don't know you from Adam. So we came to help. There was a sound of wet agreements as several of the locals chewed cud and digested the news. There was a sudden wet gurgle in the corner. Both the locals and the captain turned to look. Corporal Johnson, Smith said levelly. What are you doing? The other Terran turned to face the captain but remained sitting in front of the young local child. Sir, making the young child a laugh, sir. As he spoke, Johnson twirled the power cell between his fingers, making it seemingly appear and disappear. Very well, Corporal. Carry on. Her father held the line the first day, one of the locals said, as they turned away again. 
She has not spoken since. But the line held. And it will keep holding, Captain said. Now, I would like to see some maps before I have some suggestions. It was even later. The captain was pointing at a crude map drawn on the floor. So we hold the line. My espeteers will reinforce here, here, and here. In two days, the TSS, look what we can do, will be close enough to launch recovery shuttles. Yes? Your ship is not in orbit now. How did you get here before it? Stand a ballistic insertion. We launched as soon as we had a good fix on the decent trajectory. Four days in the pod. It was a jagged jaunt. You did that for us? As I said, you asked for aid. We don't know you from Adam. So we came. The sound of approval and awe filled the building. As I said, they will launch recovery shuttles. How many of you are still? 2,500. 20! Oh, the signal said 3,000. But the line holds. The line holds and will hold. Where can we land the shuttles? There is a spaceport outside the line. I see, the captain pondered. We must extend the line there, then. In the early light of the morning, they meet again. The line! The line holds, captain. Your espeteers fight like demons. I know. They say your people are fierce fighters. When we must. Why were some of your soldiers emptying a fertilizer warehouse in the night? It's... They all turned at the sound of shuffling. Corporal, what are you doing? Sir, I'm being a... Corporal Johnson looked up at Charla, who were astride on his back. April, the child said excitedly. A domesticated beast of burden, one of the locals added hopefully. A horse, sir. Very well, Corporal. Carry on. As I was saying, the captain continued, after turning back. It was full of ammonium nitrate. My espeteers will show your people ways to hold the line with it. And at the right time, move the line. It was later, that same day. The enemy knows you are here, Captain. They redoubled their efforts here and here. The captain nodded as he bent over the map. Losses? About two hundred and fifteen Terrans. Two hundred and fifteen! But the line held. The line holds. What should we do with your dead? Marry them alongside your fallen. They fought together. They died together. And they will face the afterlife. Together. But, uh, yes, it'll be done. We will give them the same honors of our fallen. Two hundred and fifteen. In just a few hours. But they held the line. The captain looked up from the map. A tired smile appeared on watched Corporals Johnson and Charla walking along the line of wounded. We don't know you from Adam, he said, as he nodded towards the odd pair, and those two recognize that we're kin. As night approached, the captain and several locals leaned over the map again. Captain, we must pull back at this point if we are to have enough forces to break through the spaceport. We would risk an enemy breakthrough here, and if we lose at the flank, well, we'll ask for volunteers. If they move fast when the signal goes out, they can still make evacuation. Mm. Yes, the line must hold. Just a day more. Just a day more, Captain. And then a break for the spaceport. Let's go over the timings once again. The shuttles cannot stay on the ground very long. Can they lift 2100? Not officially. But this is a low-grab world. We just have to pack in tight and leave everything behind. Light. Slowly spread as the sun feebly shone through the dust and haze. The line holds, Captain, and it will be held for a few more hours. We're getting low on power cells and medical supplies. Yes, but your medics are working wonders. We would not have 2100 still holding the line if they were not here. The wounded would travel slower, but they will make it. 
The noon sun was beating down. Shuttle launch has been confirmed. Good news, Captain. So we start moving. We start moving. A strong wedge in front, skirmishers on either flank, and non-fighters in the middle. Um, we have requests from several volunteers to stay behind and hold the line, to buy us more time. I know. I don't like it, but it would delay the enemy. They all watched as the children, elderly and wounded, formed up amongst the bustling troops. A human figure moved among them, a child riding his shoulders. Your corporal is good with children. He must be a good father. He was, uh, until, uh, never mind. We need to move. Hours later, hundreds of faces were turned skywards as the first shuttles came in. Remember, children and non-combatants on the first, then load according to plan. The last group holds the line until the signal. The line will hold any words from the volunteers. They hold their line still. Good. Now, let us hustle. We got 1,800 to board and lift. We still don't know why you'd come to help, but as I said, we don't know you from Adam. But that is for later. The captain looked over the pandemonium of the spaceport, shaking his head as he saw a figure moving towards the outer perimeter. Corporal Johnson, where do you think you are going? Sir, to uphold the line, sir. Like hell you are, Corporal. You're going to be on the first flight out. And that is an order. But, sir, an order, Corporal. There is a girl in there that doesn't know you yet. Sir. Later, the TSS, look at what we can do, was burning hard to leave the system. The captain walked through the sick bay, speaking softly with every single wounded. Corporal Johnson, as you were. The corporal looked up from his seat beside the medbed. Sir, this is Charlotte's mother. She held the line and was on the last flight out, sir. Will she make it, sir? I think, uh, yes. Yes, she will, sir. The corporal thought for a second before speaking again. Captain, granted, stay with her and Charlotte, help them hold this line. And that is an order, if anyone wonders. Sir. Some of the locals caught up with the captain as he was leaving the infirmary. Captain, the last volunteers just signaled that they were preparing to blow up their positions. I see. They held the line this long. They held the line so the rest could escape. We call it a treat, not an escape. A good word. We wish to thank you for coming to our aid. How could we not? But you don't. Didn't know us or who we are. And yet you still saved more than sixteen hundreds of us. That reminds me, the captain said as he smiled. I've been informed that my translation has been a bit wrong. It shouldn't be don't know you from Adam. It should have been can't tell you apart from Adam. We, we see. Who is Adam? The first human, and by extension any human. Like you, or me, or Corporal Johnson back there. They all turned and looked into the large infirmary, where two figures sat by a medbed, waiting. One Terran Espetier and one local child. Two humans waiting for a third to recover. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1803. Story number one. Dragons relive a long time. Written by something touches back. The dragon Ulriog was lying on a vast red and gold velvet-covered mattress on a raised platform in the center of an ornately covered cabin. The cabin, the columns, and even the platform supporting the mattress had been carved from the living rock of the mountain, so there was no seams to break up the vista of marble. Ulriog himself was nearly as long as ten of the night swords laid end to end. If they were unfolded, Ulriog's thin blue and black wings would span considerably more than that. 
Ulriok was silent, staring at the knight who had wandered well into the open space before spotting the dragon. Finally, Ulriok raised his plated violet head and said, Those helmets are great at protecting your head from rocks, but they sure are hell on your peripheral vision, aren't they? Sir Armand of Ludor had a reputation for courage that was, he knew, less about courage and more about planning. He had planned the spray carefully and had thought he was ready for anything. A few surprise blasts of fire, a mountain of gold and gems, snarls and insults, a mountain of gold and gems. Actually, he was mostly prepared for a mountain of gold and gems. Everything else was he would figure out on the fly like he usually did. Okay, maybe it was more about courage than planning. What he was definitely not prepared for was a very relaxed and articulate dragon lying on a soft bed with nary a valuable trinket in sight. What? what? Where? Where is the big mound of golden gems? Aren't dragons supposed to hoard treasure? Ulriog laughed, causing a small amount of smoke to puff out of his nostrils and rise towards his distant ceiling in little rings. Sure, dragons are supposed to hoard treasures. But dragons are supposed to be smart, too. Piling a big mound of gold and gems in a cave where just anybody can wander in doesn't sound very smart to me. Ah, you hit it. No, you moron. Stopping money in a hole in the ground doesn't return any value. A small amount of my fortune is in the vaults under the castle. Let the king protect it. He's got a bloody army for the job. I use that bet as collateral to open a checking and credit accounts at the Royal Bank, just like everybody else. But the bulk of my money I invested in longer term but higher return options. Property, for one. Dragons live a long time and property always goes up in long run. Also, I am the majority shareholder in a dozen of publicly traded companies and have voting shares in a dozen more. Oriog paused. Mounds of gold and gems. The dragon laughed again. Whatever for? I suppose you thought I would make a bed out of them rather than purchase a high-quality mattress too. Yes? Sir Armand did not have a sense of humor and did not enjoy being laughed at. If I cannot take your gold, then I shall free the land of your avarice by taking your head. And with that, Sir Armand drew his mighty sword. The sun reflected brightly of the clear water of the stream. Up the bank a bit, a young man dressed in a cape of rich blue with a black trim over a jerkin and breeches of violet knelt in front of a basin of warm, soapy water. He grabbed another handful of clean sand and continued scrubbing the blood and gore off his gauntlet, the metal of which retained the bluish tinge from heat damage. When he was satisfied, he tossed it onto his glowing pile of clean plate armor. Finally, he gathered all the metal into a large cargo net, stood back, and morphed back into his dragon form. Being a dragon is great and all, and he loved the taste of the knight broiled in his own armor, but tiny claws halfway up massive wings are just not ideal for doing dishes. Catching a net in his leg claws, Ulriog launched himself into the air and flew off towards the hall of Mountain King, the dwarves, and the same ones that had carved Ulriog's beautiful lair for him, paid top dollar for the recyclable metal but fastidiously demanded that it be free of food residue. While flying, Ulriog again thought about the knights searching for a mountain of gold and gems. Dragons live a long time. They wouldn't if just any fool with a sword had any chance against a dragon. But by starting that particular rumor, Ulriog had enjoyed many hot nights. End of story. 
Story number two. Humans and the Knack, written by Damaged Dice DM. It is well known in the galaxy that humans are different. There are plenty of humanoid class alien species. You know, bipedal, warm-blooded, opposable digits, etc. However, they just stand out no matter how you measure them. The early humans had a document that was a collection of records. Many of them proclaimed best in the universe at something, which was strange due to the fact that humans of this time period had not even left their local cluster, much less their own solar system or galaxy. Yet the book remains in publication in known fiction section of many libraries across the known space, with only a few edits and updates needed, mostly humans exceeding their own previous records. At first, it was assumed that humans had diversified into specialist castes, breeding the best at the particular skill, like many other species had done. But upon study, aside from slight variations in skin pigment and eye color, the species was surprisingly homogenous. The next theory was extreme genetic alteration to create a species that was extremely adaptable. But upon further study, the genome exposed a meandering and chaotic evolution, filled with dead ends and vestigial DNA fragments. The entire galactic scientific community was stumped for all the explanation as to how the humans were so good at so many things, even things they had never even tried before sometimes. A captured human escaped a prison colony after being abducted and was able to elude an entire squadron of pursuit vehicles piloted by expert combat veterans of the Orion system in a stolen spaceship in a time that humans had none of their own, making it impossible for them to have been trained on the operation beforehand. It seems that any given human has any chance of being able to perform any given task, regardless of training, instruction, or even the feasibility of the given task in the extreme events. Apparently, they call it the knack, and we cannot seem to find any hard evidence of it or explain how it is possible, yet the data is irrefutable. Humans can do things they should not be able to do. They celebrate this madness with saying things like, I'll try anything once, hold my beer, never tell me the odds, and uh, YOLO. The only known trigger for the knack is anyone telling a human engineer there is something that cannot be done. Though, doing so isn't a great idea, because whatever happens, you can be sure that you're going to have to rewrite all your textbooks on the laws of physics just to account for the new exceptions they found. End of story. Story number three. Maniacs, the lot of them, written by much use of such taken. Log date 10-11-9960. We have recently picked up what seems to be two massive objects orbiting each other, probably on a collision course. I am thrilled to add the data that we gathered from this obscure little corner of our galactic arm to the very sparsely populated archives documenting this phenomenon. I shall write another log tomorrow, once we all look through the other telemetry. Log date, 11-11-9960. I think we witnessed the merging of two minor black holes, since our rather comprehensive array of cameras only picked up a small dot of light that seemed to move along with the source of gravity waves. It must have accidentally performed the slingshot maneuver, since it was flung away at what I can only assume to be a good fraction of C. I pray that whatever that was doesn't hit anything populated. Log date, 12-11-9960. There are several discrepancies in our data. The range-finding equipment places the event practically on top of a planet that has a sentient species on it. 
At this distance, there is a 0.01% chance bearing and range error margin, but that still places the event within the solar system, which it didn't seem to have an impact on. Also, the event's point of the origin seems to have moved with a little speck we thought was a catapulted asteroid. I've delayed sending our report. I have a feeling we'll have a breakthrough soon. Log date, 13-11-1960. I have requested more information on the system. It seems that it is inhabited by a race calling themselves humans. Oh, after a few hundred years passed, and each colony's populace gained a more distinctive traits, the term only refers to the general species, and further classifications are a mess. They've been toying with the idea of the Alkabiri Drive for a long while. If they got this concept to work, that may explain the gravitational waves and the accelerating object. Log 1411-1960 It's worse, much worse. We were unfortunate enough to witness the return of the first superluminal craft. It appeared barreling at light speed and rapidly decelerating, causing gravitational waves that decreased in frequency as the ship slowed to more acceptable speeds. How they deal with space debris is unknown to me but I pity the poor souls who have to be near such a ship. The noise they would make as the gravitational waves pull on the matter must be horrendous. I should have known that they would have made something loud and barely practical as soon as I looked into their history. I shall send my report. I hope that it will not be ignored due to the obscure little corner of our galactic arm that it concerns. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1804 Winner Takes All, written by Glacial Fury. The Admiral's office was large and well-appointed, but far too stuffy for Asteron's tastes. He adjusted his gold fringe purple shawl of office and sipped at the glass of fortified water, focusing on the Admiral's words rather than his own discomfort. With a final indignant fluff of his feathers, he settled into the grab seat's cushions, convinced she'd cranked the heat up just to be rude. Everyone knew Farstar preferred moderate climates, and fleet commanders resented Inquisitors poking about their business. Wars have always been fought as a mere formality for the Galactic Council's loose collection of member nations, Admiral Tycan said. More theatrics than malice, a show of strength and grandeur for the masses. Asteron sat facing the Admiral's opal-inlaid blackwood desk, lacquered and polished until it shone like glass. His avian features were purposely composed, a sea of unshakable serenity, as was appropriate for an inquisitor of the tower, only an expression of mild interest on his face. The admiral continued, armies would show up, fight, and if your side lost well, you paid some reparations, maybe a tribute signed a treaty, and that was that. Everyone got to go back to the business of governing a nation and turning a profit. Wars are expensive, you know and not the province of madmen or savages. Merely a tool to acquire better trade agreements or squeeze more land into your borders. More often than not, just a saber-rattling to soothe the wounded pride. Nothing more. What's changed, Admiral? Astoran adjusted his spectacles, not that he needed such to see. They were a decorative piece, something he fancied lent him an air of wisdom and enlightenment. Admiral Tycan stood with her four big hands clasped below the sharp crest that ran down her back, gazing through the large oval window of her office, looking at the fleet's vast orbital shipyards. I always found this view to be breathtaking, she said, without turning to face the Inquisitor, ignoring his question. Don't you agree? Astoran peered past the Admiral's bulky flame, 
at the vast blue curvature of the callous star floating in the begemmed blackness behind the shipyards. The faint suggestion of greenish-blue countenance peaked from beneath swirls of clouds. Within the sphere there was a glowing gem, an arresting scene for anyone. It is a striking view, he agreed, but only out of politeness. He wasn't here to discuss the scenery, no matter how inspiring. A mile-long fleet battle cruiser eased past outside the window, briefly obstructing his view of Callistar. He adjusted his spectacles and asked again, What changed as it pertains to war, Admiral? Why is this particular conflict so costly, both in terms of equipment and lives spent? Where does the failure begin? Admiral Tycan stiffened. Then her head slowly turned to peer at him with one slitted green eye over her shoulder. Astoran drew back from the gaze and swallowed hard. The Admiral was built like a Celestine Rhino, a Gallorian famed across the Galactic Council for her volatile temperament. Are you implying that this catastrophe is somehow Fleet Command's fault? Her voice was more than taut. It was hostile. I'll ask you to leave my office right now. No, no. He was quick to say, nothing like that, Admiral. Nothing like that. The Council of Towers are only trying to understand how Fleet has lost more ships and their crews in the past six months than all the conflicts of the past two centuries combined. How is this possible? What has changed? Admiral Tycan snorted and turned her gaze back to the window. Your politicians are truly disconnected from the realities of the galaxy around them. She drew in a deep breath, then continued. What happened, you asked? I'll tell you plain. You and the tower misjudged the humans. That's what happened. You sit in the safety of your halls and play dead politics, while we in fleet meet the enemy on the field. I told you then, and I say it now. We should have found another way for the species. They are stubborn beyond stubborn. Bullheaded enough to teach rocks to sing. You don't want to make war with such creatures. Surely the humans are not so difficult as all that. The idea seemed utterly preposterous to the Inquisitor. We faced staunch resistance before and prevailed. The simulations not like this. Admiral Tycan cut him off. Forget your simulations. She considered what she knew of the humans. They were formidable, but not more than the Gek or the Polsters but both warrior cultures of old. Humans were not monstrous creatures that swarmed with animal ferocity. What set them apart was a gritty world to win. In one of their armies was defeated, they did not simply retire to await terms. They regrouped and came back, again and again, until council forces wept at the sight of them. Humans refused to lose. How did one reason with such an enemy? She told the Inquisitor as much. The Arilin Sector, she said, called Sol by humans, was the next parcel of space to be brought into the fold. The Inquisitor nodded impatiently, sipping his water. Yes, yes, as it should be. I'll skip the fleet's failure to gain more than a foothold in the expansion. That is why you're here, yes? The Inquisitor nodded and began making odd gestures. Now I'll be taking notes, personal thoughts, in the moment, and I must inform you that our conversation is being recorded in an official capacity. Admiral Tyken waved this away as unimportant. Let me start by saying humans do not observe the well-established conventions of war as any polite and civilized society should. She moved away from the window, across the office, to the black opal liquor cabinet, surrounded by hollows of plants from her homeworld, and poured herself a drink. As you know, six months ago, the writ came down from the council tower, approving the expansion into the Arilin sector. She lifted the cut crystal glass with two fingers worth of dark liquid lapping inside. 
Whiskey, she said. A human delicacy, I'm told. She paced a circle, sipping at the drink and gathering her thoughts. We'd fleet made generous offers on several occasions for their kind to submit to the council. Ice clinked in the crystal glass when she took a sip. Each time we offered, they politely refused. We've dealt with stubborn species in the past, so no one gave it much thought, and the next steps on diplomacy were mapped out. The expansion must go on, yes. So the tower decided an expeditionary campaign into Sol system was in order. They believed a few token battles would be sufficient to convince the humans that joining us was the only way, despite my counsel to the contrary. Then the diplomats would be brought in to negotiate the finer points of the treaty and Sol's absorption into civilized society. The Inquisitor made notes on his integrated holographic HUD with slight gestures of his talons that made it seem like he was pawing at the air. Tycan stifled a laugh and covered the slip by taking another drink. What next? he said. The Admiral's great shoulders rose with an indrawn breath. The fleet mobilized, descended on Seoul, and the campaign began with the siege of the Utopia defense ring. Things went fairly well at the start, yet nothing sets a human jaw more than a knife in the back. And that's how they saw our expansion, an unprovoked sneak attack. So they beat the drums of war. They refused to come to terms, Astoran said, his eyes absent, as he made his notes but still seeming surprised. What of three treaties? Our office fell on dead ears, but the tower was confident that within two months the humans would see the logical course was to come into the fold like so many others before them. But that didn't happen, the Inquisitor said, still taking notes. So it was an error at a political level, diplomatic. We need to know the exact cause so we can correct it in the future. The error, Admiral Tycan said, was to claim their species as our own. From what few humans we've managed to capture, I've learned that they do not see war as we do, as a tool of trade. When they fight, especially in response to an unprovoked sneak attack, it is an all-or-nothing bet. They do not stop until it is done. Winner takes all. The Inquisitor stopped his notes and blinked behind his spectacles. What does that mean, Admiral? Winner takes all of what? Admiral Tycan tossed back her glass with a growling sound of appreciation, then casually flung it across the office and ignored the crystalline cubes that scattered over a prized Ordelian gold thread rug. Just what I said. She sat down behind her desk, Rim regarded the Inquisitor with unreadable eyes. Even the fine scales that drew the line down her forehead to her snout remained an impassive green and blue. When it takes all, they fight until they have it all. All our systems, all our wealth, all our joy. They don't believe in slavery, so that is not a concern. But if victorious, they'll impose harsh reparations. We would become their vassals in all but name. Admiral Tycan had the brief satisfaction of watching abject horror spread across the Inquisitor's face. Now, he understood. Maybe. She drove reality home to the hilt. They will not surrender or come to terms, not ever. They will fight until the threat to their way of life has been neutralized. There will be no trade breaches, no matter how generous, to end the fighting with Saul. Master Ran was speechless. He could only stare at her, beak working in silent disbelief. But that isn't how wars are fought. Admiral, everyone knows that. Isn't it? She grunted. Seems someone forgot to tell the humans that fact. The Inquisitor blinked his beady bird's eyes at her. But they are hopelessly outmatched. Why not simply acknowledge that and get on with the business of trade treaties? 
and everyone making money. Forget what you think you know, Inquisitor. Humans defy expectations. They are a small power, true, but growing and tenacious as a ghast hound and twice as stubborn. The best that can be expected is an endless state of war. None of the tower want that. It's terrible for business. Now ask the rest of your questions and be very quick about it. I'm very busy. There's a war on, you know. The Inquisitor's expression grew bleaker with each question the Admiral answered, and his beak paled from bright orange to a pallid yellow. When he finally left Admiral Tycon's office, it was with a thoroughly ruffled feathers and a firm understanding that the only mistake on Fleet's part was attacking the humans in the first place. The Tower's mistake was thinking to annex the Aurelian sector through force of arms. Long after Astoran had taken his leave, Admiral Tycon stood at a window, watching ships split past in the orbital fortress yard, framed by the luminous planet beyond. The inquiry was over, but the answers she'd given and the disturbing thoughts they'd conjured still haunted her. Could humans actually fight this way to the heart of the Council? As Astoran had asked, could they threaten the Council's gates? What a horrifying thought. What was to be done with the enemy who refused to lose or consider terms? How could the Council make them see that it was in everyone's best interest for Saul to submit to the trade treaties and come into the fold? No answers came. She crossed the room, retrieved a glass from the carpet, poured another drink, and returned to her window. Ice chimed with each sip. Humans, she grunted, as she shook her head in grudging admiration of their courage and refusal to quit. It was all very romantic, after a fashion, yet her thoughts inevitably slipped to how things would be in another year. Two, surely the humans must see reason long before then. A queasy feeling settled in her gut. Must they? Staring out at the Kalistar, Admiral Tyken sipped a drink, and her words to Astorad echoed in her thoughts. Winner takes it all. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1805 Story number one. The Fourth Spirit, written by Warp Mind. Azartha Academy of Sciences Auditorium 1. A thack school looked nervously at the gathered audience. At least 5,000 people of the various species were gathered, and maybe a couple magnitude more watching, the imminent lecture being broadcast. And he took a small sip of the little flask at his hip, just to steady his nerves. The audience wasn't the issue. He'd addressed far larger crowds before, but the subject of his speech had broken him in ways he couldn't quite describe. The Denbaran professor walked slowly towards the podium and set up his nuts, and several of the audience let out a soft gasp. His spines had taken on an unslightly pinkish hue, and his facial skin seemed to sag as if he'd aged decades before his time. He cleared his throat and took a sip of the glass of water set out for him, then looked out on the crowd. Gathered sofans, I am sure you all know every known sapient species to date possesses the three spirits. Still, to ensure everyone in this is on the same page, let me make a quick summary. He pressed a button and an image series of various aliens was displayed behind him, each of them showing the drive to live. The first spirit is the spirit of survival, which can help creatures push themselves beyond normal limits and get themselves out of a deadly situation of any kind. 
This can be the last boost of strength to pull oneself up from a river before drowning. All the endurance to go another day without food before finding something edible. And so on. This is also the spirit that encourages procreation to ensure the species' continuation. Without the first spirit, no species, sapient or not, will survive. Another button press showing a picture series of various aliens huddling together in what could look like family groups or larger groups, sometimes from round a fire, sometimes just dogpiling of sleeping beasts. The second spirit is the spirit of community, which is what enables cooperation, sharing of food and territory, and that which fundamentally enables the chance for a species to attain sapience. Another button press, this time the aliens were sharing knowledge, building things, studying devices. The third spirit is the spirit of reason, given a species' ability to perform complex problem-solving, develop language, comprehend mathematics, and make use of tools. No so font exists without the third spirit. He looked into this glass of water and took another sip, pressing the button one more time, revealing a new alien, slightly pinkish-brown skin, a patch of fur on the head, simple biped physiology with a single pair of arms. This, uh, is a Terran or a human. I have recently encountered them and determined that they are in possession of a false spirit. It is, uh, quite remarkable. He took a not-so-surreptitious sip of his hip flask before moving his presentation to a slide showing a simple habitat cluster, a couple dozen structures mainly designed from local natural materials. By the looks of it, this image was taken at a human colony of Artemis IV. About 80 humans of various ages lived in the buildings you see here. Almost 50 adults, the rest juveniles. Please close attention to the yellow building there. It was where the approximately 150 juveniles of Artemis IV were tasked with study, under the supervision of two dozen adults, while the other adults were elsewhere in the colony working. In total, the colonists numbered around 1,200. A nice start, before more could arrive on a subsequent transport. Another slide, this time the yellow building had a large hole in it. A small Arthurban hunting vessel struck, three-fifths of the standard year ago. The Arthurbans hit the weakest members of the colony, the juveniles, and simply carried them off into their ship, along with the educators, living or dead. He grimaced. Now he was in the communications tower when the humans called the Arthurbans to ask what the demands were in exchange for returning their children. The Arthurban captain asked what demands the humans were speaking of. He just picked up some rations. Surely the humans could make more. He shivered, drinking more obviously from his flask. Something broke in the humans. It could be felt in the air, seen in their posture and eyes. The fourth spirit rose in them, and at that moment, they buried the first spirit. The entire colony was no longer concerned with its own survival. The only thing that concerned them was that, no matter the cost, the Arthurbans would be hunted down and punished. If I could have felt hot rage, I could have understood that. But the only thing I could sense was coldness. Oh, the second and third spirits were present, but only in subservience to a cold, infinitely motivated hatred. The likes of which I've seen in no other species. 
the shuttlecraft, the transport ship that brought the colonists to the planet. They were all repurposed, armed, augmented, with terrible purpose and certainty. And I was there to watch it all happen. He pushed the button one last time, showing a dead world with glassy patches of surface underneath a massive cold cloud. Athrap Prime is dead world of three standard days ago. The colonists requisitioned my research vessel as part of their assault fleet to gain access to my charts and any information on Arthraban biology. They only let me depart after reaching the Athrab system, as I was no longer needed to help. Then they did not need to get me killed, but I still watched as they flung an insane barrage of asteroids at the planet. The planet's redefense system never had a chance to keep up. He swallowed hard. The humans have the false spirit. And it is a monster of pure spite and selfless malice and vindictiveness. I believe something like 70 of the Arthemis 4 colonists survived the entire affair. That's 70 more than those surviving Athrobans. One audience member at the front raised a hand. An ethics schooler acknowledged the question. Professor, you said the colony counted 1,200 humans before this genocide, and now the 70 remain. How many humans are there in total? A million? Three million? Eight million? Seems like they're re reproduced slowly. Athex Schooler shook his head. According to their last count, about 26 billion on their home world alone. A loud gasp and several in the audience fainted, all threw up in panic. Artemis IV Colony, 15 standard years later. Athax Gula was buried on a rainy afternoon in a large cemetery with mostly empty graves, where 147 small markers had been recently moved around to accommodate a place of honor among them. A Dan Baron and a human both said a few quiet words as the casket was lowered into the ground, and the gathered crowd watched in reverent silence. Eventually, the grave was filled with soil, and a great headstone was erected. On its face, thick golden letters were visible in three dozen languages. Here rests Athex Skula in reverence. He showed the galaxy our worst, and through him, the galaxy helped us to be our best. May humanity never need his equal again. End of story. Story number two. The Humans Monsters, written by Voidy Boy. Most races have their respective religions and gods, and most follow the basic, the monsters and the saints. The saints being holy beings of the race in question, and monsters representing the race's twisted side. Then we heard of the humans' monsters. The humans were a race of curious, fragile, and somewhat disturbing beings from a class 7 continent world they called Earth. Following some bumpy first contact, the galactic community poked and prodded the new species, till a strange human who called himself a missionary arrived in one of our research stations to educate, of us, of something. So being respectful, we accepted the book and began to read its scripts. As we read it spoke of things unknowable, human's teeth being torn out, a man thrown into harbors with anchors tied to their necks, and a man whom died in a gruesome way idealized by some sick religion. The monsters of the humans plague our dreams, 
and the entire station descended into chaos due to the house spawn, the human mind. As they took their lives out of fear of these beasts and many others scared, we asked the humans to take the book away from us. We told them we had enough of their monsters. Then uh, the humans sent back a message that shocked all of those on the stations. Monsters? Uh, surely this must be a misunderstanding. This is a book of saints. We stood dumbfounded. If this were their saints, then what were their monsters? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1806 Acceptance, Depression, Bargaining Written by Echoing Cascade The death of Trince was getting annoyed. His charges had started a war with the humans, and on this desolate mud ball, in the middle of nowhere, a fierce battle had taken place. The main Trin's forces ran into a small group of humans on a reconnaissance mission. The Trin general made a speech on how this easy victory would be one of many. After he finished the speech, a very polite sniper blew his head clean off. The shot was taken from an obscene distance, using a slug thrower of all things. His second-in-command tried to speak to the troops within a much larger defense perimeter, but was also shot from an even greater distance. By the time Captain Riskets was put in charge, the Trin had lost the top four officers in their army and a hundred of their men in guerrilla warfare. He had actual combat experience, and when asked when he would address the troops, he simply said, Right after we launch an orbital bombardment of the whole continent, I'm not going down there while there are any of their death world is still alive. Are you crazy? They had no doubt killed all the humans, but many traps survived them. Which is why death of Trins was still making the rounds. I get that they are trying to salvage any data that might have survived the bombardment, but they're being dying by the dozens and found nothing. The death of Trins mused on the stupidity of this conflict when he felt a presence approach him. Death of men. Hello! Death of Trins. Hello. I mean, hello. The Death of Trins waved his dorsal arms, which held the crisp knife, the tools of his office. Death of Trins, what brings you? Oh, crap. We didn't get all the humans, did we? This thing just got started, and I'm already getting more work than the last plague. Death of Trins sat down and looked at the stars, melancholy and defeat in his compound eyes. The death of men scratched his head with his right hand, while his left one held his scythe. Actually, it's a funny story. Last week after the orbital bombardment, I appeared in front of the eight rangers that had been fighting the Trins. Before I could say a word, they looked at me, then each other, and then ran in eight different directions. And, uh, well... The death of Trins thought this normal. No one wants to die so futile as it was. Running away was the normal. Currents. Death of Trins, I don't see the problem. Death of Men sat down next to the Trins' counterpart, looked up to the stars, the same look of defeat in his empty sockets. The Death of Men, I uh, cannot find the last two. The Death of Trins barely reacted. The humans successfully outran and hid away from their death. Sure, why not? Everything else was wrong with this war, so why not that too? We need to do something about this conflict. It's not looking good for either one of us, let alone our charges. The Death of Trins, right? Uh, what do you want us to do about it? Kill anyone in power who wants to keep fighting? Death of Trins laughed in derision, then suddenly stopped. The two deaths looked at each other, and for the first time in weeks, they smiled. 
Terran High Command discussed the war with the Trins. It had already begun and they were suing for peace. This happened after the deaths of multiple Trin leaders in increasingly bizarre circumstances. Every human spy agency took credit for the kills, but none could actually prove they did it. The fleet generals were voting on a swift out assault of the Trins to make an example out of them. Of the six fleet generals, five voted against and one for. General Tai, they are weak. We are without a proper government. We could eradicate them over the single day. Death is too good for them. We... The other generals never heard the rest of the sentence, as General Tyre fell over dead. General Tyre found himself in an endless white room. Where am I? How did I get here? Before him appeared Death in his black cloak, holding his scythe. Well, what do you want? I'm, I'm a general, you know. On the edge of panic could be heard around the old general. Death lifted his scythe to strike. Uh, nothing personal. I've made a deal. Besides... As you kids like to say, he swung his scythe to the trembling general, whose essence vanished from death's realm. I heard you were talking, uh, shit. General Morrow was looking at the paramedics attending to Tyre. General Morrow, is he dead? Paramedic. I can say that he is without a doubt the deadest person I've ever seen. It seems every organ on his body exploded, including his appendix. Which, let me recheck. The paramedic read some data on his pad for confirmation. He had removed uh, 27 years ago. General Morrow, is that normal? The paramedic gave the general a kind of look regularly reserved for very young kids or very dumb adults, asking stupid questions they had to answer. No, organs don't just usually regrow just to blow up with their comrades. General Morrow, right, well, uh, gentlemen, I say we take this as a sign that peace is the way to go. Peace talks advanced quickly after that, and a truce was signed in record time. Everyone was happy. Well, almost everyone. I think I figured out where the last one is. He is probably hiding inside the northern volcano and using the lava currents to move unseen. Death of Trends. Got it. I'll cut off his escape route. It would be a couple more days until Death of Men finished his original task. End of story. Story number two. Wait. You're not a telepath, written by Louis Le Diamond. Talgi was choking on the air around her. Anticipation left little room for breathable substances, even in such large a space fort. As the boarding door in front of her and the body of unlookers she found herself in started, it had been 567 cycles since the last new species was introduced into the galaxy. Even her great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents didn't remember the Unnovian's entrance. This new species, humans as they were, were circled relentlessly by rumor and speculation. Snaking Hall rattled the door into a hiss as the aliens approached. Talgi would have suffocated if she were any more excited. Painfully slow, the door took its time making its way into the open position. A few dozen pairs of long, thick legs were sluggishly revealed. It was finally happening. Within a few moments, all of the strange-looking apes were bombarded with the full might of galactic curiosity. Questions about culture, reproduction, social dynamics, and of course, the endless onslaught of rumors from humans having telepathy to them having destroyed three other planets before landing on Earth filled their stale air. Hopefully the answers were more breathable than the excitement. Finally, Talki managed to find a single lone human one who had gotten away from the packs of ferocious interrogators. 
She stared at the strange creature, waiting for it to do or say anything. It had a small white and orange paper object in its mouth, and the end of which had a small ember burning. It looked at her and exhaled slowly. You know, I came over here to not be asked a billion questions, the translator reported. The human looked up at her again. Its eyes were strikingly white. A large blue ring with the black circle in the middle made up the rest of its sensory organ. What? Talky didn't know what to ask first. Blocks of questions flew around in her mind, an intense fight over which one would escape her brain first. Before she could speak, another human came from nearby and snuck its way to the next to the other one. This one was larger and with a wider frame. As soon as it was out of the sight of the rest of the crowd, it began to speak to the smaller human. I don't think we're supposed to be smoking in here. Close space and all that, it started. Are you going to stop me, officer? Tuggy figured that officer must be the name of the second human, though she still couldn't figure out the name of the first one. And who might you be? Officer looked dead at Tuggy. This one's eyes had brown ring rather than blue. I'm Tuggy. I have so many questions. Ask away, I guess. Um... Suddenly, the fierce dogfight of unanswered questions ceased entirely. The skies of her mind were clear and empty. She could think of a single question to ask until... Oh, uh, your name is Officer, right? What does that mean? What? They said your name is Officer. Oh, oh, no, no, no. She was just being a snarky arsehole. My name is Tom. Jane. The smaller human chimed in. Tom suddenly raised his hand and stuck a finger out. Well, Miss Jane, I think your boyfriend over there wants you to come back. Kid looks like he needs some backup. Oh shit, we're right. Jane threw the smoke on the ground and stomped on it violently, extinguishing its flame. Well, it was lovely meeting you two. I've got to go. Talgy couldn't help but hang on the last sentence. Why did Jane say meeting you two? Never met her before in my life. Wait, so how did you know her friend needed her? Tom looked at Talgy in what she assumed was confusion or maybe irritation. Look at the kid. He's sweating bullets. But how did you know he needed her? I don't know. I just did. Suddenly, it all made sense. Humans were telepaths after all. You read his mind, didn't you? It's true then. Humans are telepaths. No, humans aren't telepaths. Then explain how you did that. Talky was sure she had figured it out. There was no way of knowing what another was feeling without them telling you directly. I don't know, kid. I just knew, okay? I didn't read his damn mind. Wait. So you aren't Telepath? No, I can just read him. He looks overwhelmed and kept looking over here. I assumed it was for her. There. Happy. She could now tell that he was irritated. She looked over at the other humans. Could they all read each other? Or were they actually telepaths and just lying? Talky wasn't sure she'd ever find out, but maybe she could coax a different answer to a separate question. So is it true you destroyed three other planets before landing on Earth? End of story. I would quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and Patreons. Casper Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barky, Lord Azrakal, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Dragzoon WRE, Holly's Sister, Arcadian. Thank you very much.